This is Purple Radio On Demand. The myth of America should have died in 1890 when the superintendent of the census declared the country's border settlements too interspersed with population centers to be deemed a frontier line. America's progression west had all but ended, and the ideal of pioneering homesteaders should have followed suit. But it didn't. In his 1893 essay, The Significance of the Frontier in American History, Frederick Jackson Turner outlines the cultural and economic effects the western frontier had on America's idea of itself by eroding antiquated European ideals and customs. As early as the 1820s, novels and magazines had turned their eyes west, besetting the tales of rugged pioneers who were simultaneously carving humble lives for themselves in untamed lands while bringing civilization and order to a perceived savage wilderness. Jim's Ki- Jim Kitsis comments on this duality in Horizons West. The Western frontier represents both a spearhead of progress and a retreat of ritual from East Coast restrictions and institutions. Clearly, the Western genre plays wholly into a romanticized and often contradictory notion of the past, with cemented archetypes and an inlaid morality in the eyes of the spectator. And it is this notion that no country for old men seeks to upend. Now that was taken from an article I wrote all the way back in 2020. At this point, I want to say, or was it 2021? It's been a while. Anyway, Zach, when did you fall in love with the myth of the Western frontier, would you say? I would say... um... And for me, I can't really like divorce it from Western movies. For me, it is through Western movies. It's not like I was really like a fan of the history before, and then mm. fell in love with the movies that depicted that history. It's more those films, and it was because I we had obviously at A level, including this film, uh, studied westerns a little bit, and I kind of got into them through doing that. But I also thought when I was going to university to study, I was kind of like I felt like I should know westerns because westerns are such a, a filmy genre they're, they, you know they're, they're, it's a very big historical film genre that was very popular of course not as popular anymore and so i kind of felt like i should really know it like i you know i should really know it well before i go in and actually that did help me out because i did study uh film genre and we studied westerns when we did that um so it was kind of that like i kind of got onto it from like a perspective of like i want to be knowledgeable about films because otherwise you can you, you know we've been knowledgeable films so therefore, I want to be knowledgeable at Westerns, because otherwise you can kind of easily avoid it. And through just watching them, I just kind of love the, you know, um, yeah, I just kind of, I just love the vibe, basically, mm. of, of most Westerns and that kind of the idea of the frontier, that kind of lonely kind of place that's kind of chaotic. And um, I just thought it was interesting. And then that got me more interested into some of the history. Again, I'm not a scholar by any means, but, you know, I'll, I'll listen to, you know, you know, world west uh you know uh, history podcasts and stuff sometimes uh, yeah that was probably it just just through wanting to be more knowledgeable about films because i'm a film nerd i find it interesting how many directors absolutely love western so you've got your classics like martin scorsese and tarantino mm. and others besides them but you also get people like gilmaro del toro who still love western yeah, yeah. films maybe not necessarily the history itself but there is that very strange drive to love westerns in a very particular type of director. Do you have any theory on why that is, or do you think a lot of it I mean, is nostalgia? I think a bit of it maybe is nostalgia. I think a lot of the kind of pioneering directors of that time of of the kind of classic Hollywood are um, did direct westerns, um, even if that wasn't all they directed. So John Ford, probably you know at the, at the time he's making films, was probably considered to be the greatest filmmaker alive. Or at least, you know, at least from a Western point of view. 
Um, and he basically did all, all westerns. It was kind of all he did. So basically, you know, half of John Wayne or more than half of John Wayne's filmography is with John Ford. And, and again, other really big directors like Hal Hawks, also really big on westerns. And I think it's kind of taken that because they had such a great vision and mm. they were applying it to the western kind of format. And so they kind of associate, I think, that kind of really big um, kind of artistic merit, direct, directorial merit with, uh, with, with the western kind of... Uh, kind of strangely even though westerns themselves aren't very popular but people go back to them for references i mean mm. even you know to a very modern film like greta gerwig you know one of her f- favorite films is rio bravo and red river you know john wayne movies uh yeah you know really interesting i find it interesting how much of a reach they actually do have in cinema or film like even if you go i was about to say what my favorite western is we'll get back to that later but you know, you look at Kurosawa's samurai films, and for a long time, I thought those came out of nowhere, but they were themselves inspired by westerns. Yeah, yeah. because I mean, well, that was a lawless time in Japan, and I think Kurosawa—not maybe not Kurosawa, but the people who predated him—were quite inspired by that idea of you know, roaming warriors seeking out justice wherever they could. And it's interesting then that things like Seven Samurai and um, I think it's Yojimbo came back. It to the west to inspire yeah. the magnificent seven and a fistful of dollars i think it is yeah yeah fistful of dollars yeah yeah that's true i mean that does and then you mm. know also you have directors like sam peckinpah who's really influenced by kurosawa i read a whole essay um on the film genre uh unit that was like basically all about comparing how sam peckinpah who is a really modern um i say you know modern like kind of you know uh revisionist western director so in like the 70s and 60s yeah um and he's super inspired really obviously by kurosawa he said he wanted to make you know westerns how kurosawa made samurai movies so which it's kind is, of weird it's kind of the, they kind of go weird back because kurosawa was saying i want to make samurai samurai movies like they make westerns yeah it kind of goes back and forth yeah. so it's kind of you know the ideas kind of shift back and forth and you know things are lost Thing. and changed in translation and it's kind of interesting yeah i, I really do like that seeing that exchange of ideas and concepts across the world that's always quite lovely to see even if i don't necessarily like westerns myself i'm not Mm -hmm. a huge fan of them mainly because well it's not because i don't like historical documentation i never really find myself attracted to hero stories as it were i don't like superhero films and i don't necessarily like the idea of the one good man or anything like that i don't find them very appealing as it were but I do like that period of American history. I find it quite interesting how basically a new country was defining itself and coming up from basically, well, I say basically nothing, but, you know, at the time just seeing, as you're saying, new ideas come together and mesh, which is why I don't particularly find Westerns themselves very interesting because it's very much America looking back on itself with nostalgia, whereas I'm much more interested in what the country would have been like at the time. Yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously, in different films, have kind of taken it in mm. different ways, you know. Especially, you know, maybe the the earlier films are a bit more nostalgic, but um, I think again, like the western, I think is a really interesting genre because even within the genre, you have literal things that are called anti westerns and things like that, which exist, which use the same narrative tropes, but seem to in some way trying to be fundamentally undermining yeah um, the genre, which is you know really interesting, and I think there's almost interesting dialogue to the different eras of westerns mm. in a way they've the way they've kind of changed over time someone who's less busy than us could definitely look at what you're saying like the different trends of westerns and compare it to how america views itself at the time 
Yeah, I'm, I'm sure they could. I mean, because I think the thing is, a lot of people sort of go, oh, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s, Westerns are all sort of the same, and then, oh, things change in the 60s and 70s, and they're, they're very different, and Westerns aren't that popular anymore, and they're kind of, most Westerns are to some degree anti-Westerns, but then they do kind of then change beyond that as well, um, especially since they dipped in popularity and then come back up briefly, you know, and things like that. It, and it, it's quite interesting. And Where No Country for Old Men, which is uh, the film that we'll be discussing later, that sits in that, is also quite uh, an interesting discussion, which I'm sure we'll get into. Well, you mentioned No Country for Old Men. Zach, would you like to give us a little bit of background on the film we're about to discuss today? Yep. So we're, yeah, we're discussing No Country for Old Men, as we just said. Um, this was, again, uh, a film we studied back at A-Level alongside Captain Fantastic, which was our debut episode. Um, so No Country for Old Men is a, it's, uh, came out in 2007. Um, it's, you know, broadly speaking, and sort of a neo-Western mm. set in the 1980s. So again, kind of shifting the period um, of where we typically see a Western, um, but also kind of inhabits other elements of other genres like crime thrillers and um, you know, maybe even to some degree horror, some people have argued. Or slasher, um, as we'll probably get into a bit later. Yeah, yeah. and uh, it was uh, directed by um, the Coen brothers, who were, you know, famous for a lot of comedies, uh, and, and uh, you know, I mean, they've got a, got a balance of comedy and serious, and that actually, I think, also has a place in this film, mm. which is a bit more serious. So they've done things like, you know, The Big Lebowski, or Raising Arizona, uh, Arizona. they've also done Fargo. Yeah. Uh, so they, they have a very, you know, a very, very acclaimed and a very a different a kind of a diversity mm. within within their filmography, despite having a really distinctive tone mm. uh, in all of their films. The film also stars um, Josh Brolin, um, Tommy Lee Jones, uh, Kelly MacDonald and um, the Oscar winning in this film, um, Javier Bardem, who plays our villain, Anton Sugar. Sugar. Uh, Sugar or sugar or um, Chiga, as he was uh, known in our class. Yeah, yes, um, and uh, yeah, he's sort of the villain of our story. And uh, again, this is a film that, um, like I said, he won an Academy Award. It was very, this is a very well acclaimed picture. It was commercially successful, and it also won uh, the best best picture uh, Oscar uh, the year it came out, which was only one of four westerns to to do so. And um, and it was nominated for many others, like I say, Harvey Oppenheim won for Best Supporting Actor. Should I do a little outline of maybe the story and kind of where that goes? Or? Well, before you do, I also want to add this was based on a Cormac McCarthy novel, which came out only two years before the film, I think. It was... I'll get into the novel a bit later, but weirdly, it's not considered his best by other McCarthy scholars. Um, I have read it, and I tried to listen to the audiobook before we came here, so I got about halfway through before we had to record. I didn't mind it, and there's some stuff about but looking back on it, that's actually because I was influenced by the film while listening to it. I haven't read any other McCarthy's, which I sort of feel like I should get around to at some point. But yeah, by all accounts, go ahead and give us a little summary of the film. So the film is set, like I said, uh, 1980, West Texas, um, and it's... You know, it's quite a strange film in terms of its narrative. So it's kind of it kind of is fractured in in certain ways. It, it was all tied into the same thing. So we follow three main characters. We have uh, Llewellyn Moss, who's played by Josh Brolin. Um, he's uh, uh, kind of this hunter, very classical kind of Western type character. 
um, who yeah stumbles upon a large sum of money um, that sort of seems to be linked to sort of a drug um, you know a drug deal gone bad yeah basically um, and, and stumbles upon this and events sort of spiral out of control from there for Moss since he's pursued by Sugar with Sheriff Bell played by Tommy Lee Jones basically on the heels of both of them trying to figure out what's going on yeah that's kind of the basic um setup but again it gets a lot more complicated yeah than that as you kind of progress what i find quite interesting looking back on this film again is i never really clocked how opaque the plot is i know what's going on because i've watched this film quite a couple number of times at this point and i've read the book but what's quite interesting is we as an audience we know what's happening to Moss and Bell, who are, for want of a better terms, the good guys or the protagonists in this film. But in terms of the underworld dealings, the crime, we are in a very similar position to those two, where as the audience, we don't know what's going on. Not especially. As in, when we discover the crime, it's when Moss discovers the crime. And our only interactions with this seedy underbelly are through snatches and glimpses. So it very much gives you this sense that we're trespassing in an unwelcome place, as it were. It's not very clean cut in the sense that we don't know what's fully going on. And it's sort of like Moss and Bell, we're actually not invited into this space. Yeah, it, it's yeah, it's kind of interesting because we are generally aligned with those characters. And like you said, mm. it's very short scenes that deal with anything that kind of has to do with that um, crime sort of element. And I think part of that is in trying to almost make us um, I think it's in kind of deliverance of one of the themes of the film, which is this kind of crime underbelly. When you do see it, it seems a lot more modern mm. than um, than than the Tommy Lee Jones, especially, and but but also Josh Brolin's character, yeah, who seem like tra more traditional Western figures. It's very much and, not a world they fit in, which we will probably get round to when we start discussing the film. For as the title suggests, this is no country for old men. You did it. You did. You did the thing. I did the thing. Incredible, incredible. There's a Twitter account um, where they just edit scenes from a film so that people say the title. Like, there's some great stuff. Like, it's the final shot of Evangelion. Shinji saying to Asuka, well, Asuka, I guess this is the end of Evangelion. No. Stuff like that, yeah. <laughs> so I feel like at some point, there really should be a bit where Bell's wife turns to him and goes, you know, this ain't no country for old men. And... Into <laughs> the Seinfeld film. Um, but speaking of Bell, Bell does bookend this film. If we want to start getting into our discussion, so yeah. the opening shots are of basically an empty landscape, more or less. You see tracks of human habitation. There's like the occasional windmill or a farmstead or a road, but it's very much untamed wilderness in the Western sense of. Here is a vast empty land, seemingly a vast empty land for you to inhabit. Obviously, there were people living there before who didn't mm -hmm. view it that way, but that's the perspective the Western puts you into. This is effectively an area for you to recreate in your own image. And that's sort of quite, that makes it quite a familiar setup, as it were, for the film. But we're also treated to a conversation. I say conversation from Sheriff Bell. It's a monologue, but it feels very much like he's having a conversation with us. He's just casually talking about his favorite topic, which seems to be the old time sheriffs. Yeah. And kind of through that, you kind of get your first glimpse into one of the themes of the film, which is kind of this idea of, you know, 
um, old versus new and mm. this kind of idea of you know moral decay. Yeah. Um, Maybe not necessarily want... moral decay, but almost Bell not wanting to acknowledge that. So the bigger takeaway from this monologue is Bell is talking about things he doesn't necessarily understand. So he talks about one of the things he talks about is a boy he sent off to an electric chair for doing a crime, which Bell just cannot fathom how he did it. And he ends the monologue by saying, "A man ha at some point, a man has to put his soul at stake, meet the world in the eyes and go, okay, I'll be part of this world. Um, mm. I'm paraphrasing that, but basically he's saying, at some point, you are going to be forced to come to terms with reality, which is going to set yeah. up eventually what happens to him later in the film. Yeah, that, that is true. I, I would still argue that moral decay is part of that, because yeah. part of the... He he can't understand the moral world, like the, the new moral world. Yeah. And he, he does seem to view that as a moral decay. And and I think there are aspects of the film kind of later on comments he makes yeah. um, about just the way people behave later. That is, it seems to be staying up this idea that it is a moral decay and that, it's a, the, that he can't understand the new morality in this world. Yeah. Um, I agree with you that Bell cannot understand the new morality. One thing I would like to put a pin in for later is whether or not the film is also saying there is a moral decay. Let's yeah, get yeah. back to this a little bit later when we basically the last um, conversation with Bell. Um, mm -hmm. Didn't this film win an Oscar for soundtrack, or it was at least nominated? Um, I'm not sure. So it was. It, I think it was nominated for um, best director. It, it won for best picture. It won for best supporting actor. Um, I will quickly see if it did. Okay, I'm yeah. not quite sure, but I think yes. I mean it. So it was it was nom nominated and it was done by a very uh, the sound editing was done by Skip Leafsay who's is a fantastic sound editor mm. um, but it, but it was nominated but it did ultimately lose the Bourne ultimatum okay yeah because yeah. the sound design of this film actually goes a really long way unlike a lot of other westerns there's no grand fanfare of soundtrack it's a very subtle mm. ominous hum at times. Um, which happens now as Bell's monologue intersects with us seeing well, the slasher villain of this film, basically, Anton Chigurh, being put into a police car. One of the things is we don't know what Sugar's done. This is basically us picking up on Sugar in media res. We've, we've no idea who this man is at this time, but we do get a couple of establishing shots. We see, <laughs> we see his dumbass haircut, so now we know what this guy looks like, and we see his weapon of choice. Now, I want to just mention this because this is something quite funny. I've been getting into a video game called Armored Core 6. Um, it's mm -hmm. FromSoft's new game from the Armored Core series where you basically are in control of a little, little, little mech that you can customize as the game goes on with new weapons. One of the weapons is something called the Pile Bunker, and it's a one-shot wonder where this thing takes fucking forever to recharge, but if you hit someone, they're dead. Um... I accidentally clicked on TV tropes rather than the Armored Core wiki for Pile Bunker, and it lists all the other characters in fiction who have used Pile Bunkers. So obviously we've got our Armored Cores, we have Gundam. Can you also guess who is listed as using a Pile Bunker? Yeah. Is it is It's Sugar! Interesting. Anton Sugar is classed along the types of 621 from Armored Core 6 and fucking Gundam. Interesting, interesting connection. I'm, I'm not, I'm <laughs> not, I'm not sure they they share a genre as such. I don't um, think they do. But, no. But, um, but yes, yeah. But the I'm gonna call it the pile bunker because I find it funny. The pile bunker is interesting because 
you know, the classic Western villain, you know, your boy carries a gun, so we can have the classic gunfight. Shiga's got, or Sugar's got, what is basically an industrial killing tool. So it's something that kills cattle in yeah. a rapid process. So already we're starting to see the sense of modernization where this guy has, uses a weapon, an industrial killing process. Yeah, and so again, it's that, yeah, the idea of the, the new. He's got the new kind of weapon, the industrial, the modern, the, you know, and it's literally coming to kill them. It's literally coming to kill, yeah. like, you know, these people in the West. Yeah. Um, and I think that's also, I know it, this would be skipping ahead, but I think it's just, it's a brief yeah, comment. Yeah, Going back to kind of rooting it back into sort of the discussions we're having about Bell. Bell even talks about, specifically about how modern ways of killing cattle. Mm. Um, later in the film yeah and about how kind of the downsides of that and kind of how you know the risk in doing in doing that and um you know he he, he uses it to sort of make a point about you know um about 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 risk and about chance about the nature of risk and and, and chance um but again and, and it's, kind of, it's kind of interesting that he does you know see it in that way that kind of he has that skepticism that fear of mm. technology and modernism and 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 and, and i think it, it kind of is you know sugar is the most modern dressing sort of person in the film yes so ever apart from the cowboy boots which um the boots are quite important and i want to mention them later yeah. but shiga basically dresses he I want to talk about him because he's such an interesting character and I want to talk about him in comparison to the book. So when I first read the book, I'd watched the film and I was reading it for the article I just read out. And in my head, Anton Chigurh was just Javier Bardem because it's such an iconic look. When I was mm. researching this, a lot of critics found Chigurh very bland. They thought he was a very two-dimensional character, especially in comparison to the book everyone fucking talks about when they say Cormac McCarthy, Blood Meridian, which has... A guy called Judge Holden in it, who I've no idea, I've never read the book, but what I get the sense is, this dude feels like the evilest McEvil character who ever McEvil's. Like, he's six foot, he's bald, he kills children and eats them. He, you know, he's like the most archetypal evil character you can get. Um, and Sugar was mentioned as just a bad copy. So for a while, people viewed him as dollar store Judge Holden. Um, Cormac McCarthy quite likes evil characters in the sense they don't feel believable they are almost like mm. embodiments of evil but what i thought quite interesting about the cone brothers is in making shiga so weird he actually suddenly becomes believable like they said when they were casting him they were very inspired by david bowie's the man who fell to earth he feels like he's from another world effectively and that's kind of believable where he's so in a way he's so out of place that it makes sense that someone like this could exist. He's believable as a psychopath, or as a as a as someone who believes in this weird ideology he has. Yeah, it, it is interesting tension because, like you say, like he does feel like an, almost an alien, which is also something the Coen Brothers said. They said they wanted to look like uh, they wanted to cast someone who they felt could look like they could have come from Mars. Um, was one of the comments they made, which, which is a bit rude and, when you realise they went straight up to Harvey Bardem. And were like, you look weird. Yeah. And they obviously gave him his terrible haircut, um, you know, curtains, which <laughs> makes him look even stranger. And and obviously he's yeah. you know, he's got Anton Chigurh, you know that. And then, Wait, then he's Cormac McCarthy. This, you know, Cormac McCarthy just said he came up with the name because he thought it sounded cool. There is no indication of Sugar's described as a guy with blue eyes and vaguely foreign in the book. That's it. That's all we get. Yeah, 
and, and and weirdly that's kind of delivered on in, yeah, in the film i think it because, works because he's called anton sugar which maybe you think then like anton maybe like it's russian maybe it's russian yeah. but then he's speaking with this faint kind of spanish accent which obviously yeah. probably has because he's spanish yeah and it's again you kind of like he's he's, he's a kind of a walking contradiction yeah and so he seems almost alien kind of but, almost specter like but at the same time you are right he's really kind of believable yeah because it, it because of that and yeah and because of other aspects of his character. And I wanted to mention, you said mm. about him being a really believable psychopath. Yeah. He was voted in a poll of psychologists huh. to be the most realistic movie yeah. psychopath, uh, which I think yeah. is quite interesting, considering how bizarre he is in uh, comparison yeah. to some other psychopaths. I have a theory on why. And I want to, again, I want to put a pin on this, and I want to return back to it and in one of the last scenes of the movie, if you don't mind. Um, mm. But our first introduction to Sugar is... I really like this shot. We've got the poor old policeman on the phone just saying, I pulled in some weirdo. Um, you know, um, can I get some backup down here? And in the background, we just see Sugar come off a chair, jump over his handcuffs, and come up behind our guy. And here's somewhere where I think the sound design is really spot on. This feels like an actual death. Like, it's not glamorous. <clears throat> There's nothing impressive about it. What was quite interesting in the book is Cormac McCarthy describes little details like the way his boots squeak on the floor and the amount of scuff marks which the Coens mm. put into the film it looks yeah. like a struggle you can see all the little scuff like rubber burns um I was watching this with my girlfriend and she was saying you can hear his windpipe whistling as Chigger's chains are cutting into it mm. like and again that kind of showing you again how sound design isn't you know um isn't music or it isn't strange sound effects or kind of um you know maybe when you think good sound design you kind of think that bass rumble explosions and you know big movies like that but it's kind of shows that those little details i think mean, you know that's also sound design because that's not wouldn't have been the natural sounds they recorded on set that day that unless they been. actually killed the guy but hopefully they didn't yeah exactly it's it's, it's stuff they put in afterwards yeah um and, it, and again it just took that that it it just shows that kind of little kind of detail to make something things feel realistic yeah. to make something feel authentic um and i think it's also worth mentioning in this, in this scene and of course it's again a very bloody and and, and, go and kind of gory scene as well which also makes it feel not as clean as a literally in some sense mm. um as a, as a as a sequence but also it also gets to a theme that i think we want to touch on um throughout this discussion which is kind of the idea of um plans and the idea yeah. of destiny and the idea of fatalism because when um literally the line that he, that the, that the this um police officer says before he's choked i've got it under is, control uh, yeah i've got i've got it under control and then yeah. instantly he is murdered which feels like um, a an element of coen brothers comedy i i bet they time it's like a very coen brothers films you could definitely ar like set on an array of comedy to tragedy or like darker yeah. comedy this is definitely such a dark comedy in places that it's just borderline um drama but it's yeah, yeah. little bits like this where you just can't help but chuckle like it, it's kind of funny yeah it, it is and, it, and it's really interesting because i watched it with um my my cousin and um well he, he, he didn't stay for all of it unfortunately but <laughs> um but he, you know he watched what he could with me and um those early sequences where you kind of uh seeing anton Chigurh 
um, going to interact, like that scene, the face he makes when he's choking the yeah. guy, uh, and, oh. and, and a scene later on we'll discuss more in detail. Mm. Um, it, he was laughing throughout the whole thing he's, because he was just, it's, it's so silly, like he, the way he's kind of burning. So he's absurd. a goofy looking guy, but part of that is kind of creepy. Mm. Like, Shiga, yeah, I mean, Shiga definitely feels like if you ran into someone who looked like him at 3 a.m. on the street, you would be afraid. Just for no other reason other than he is a strange looking man. I've looked at this. He barely blinks. He just stares. It's a very, it's like very subtle acting in how Javier Bardem just has an absolute blank slate of a face. Yeah, I mean, again, it's very deserving of his um, yeah. Academy Award wit win for yeah. that. He, 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 you know, he, he, as well as the Coens and, of course, the source material. I mean, he's kind of almost as much responsible for crafting the characters as, yeah. as everyone else. There's some interesting stuff here as well. He looks away before the officer dies, which I find quite interesting. I don't know if this is he doesn't want to get blood on his face or anything like that, or if it's he doesn't actually want mm -hmm. to look at the death. But yeah, how do you? And that, I would interpret it similarly. I, I think because, and obviously we touched on the idea of fatalism. Mm. Sugar, he seems to be a big kind of believer in it. Like yeah, you know, fate takes you away. Yeah, I don't take you away, sort of thing. Yeah, um, and you know, it seems to be sort of his cool kind of almost macho kind of thing to say when he kills someone. It's like you know, the, the you know, he flips this coin often yeah, to make we'll decisions. Yeah, we'll get to that a little bit people. later. Yeah, but it just describes the concept. I think it's helpful here. Um, and it does seem like he's trying to, like, you know, it can be read as this kind of macho, kind of cool, kind of, you know, fates brought us together, I'm going to kill you sort of thing. Um, but also it seems to almost like he's hiding behind it to some degree. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, which... like, and, and this is a repeated motif, and it starts, obviously there's a big motif throughout the film, mm -hmm. which we'll discuss, um, but it, I think it starts with this, him looking away, he doesn't want to look this guy the face he kills him he doesn't want the blood in his face yeah and and the next scene is him washing the hands yeah uh, the, he's literally hands, getting the blood off his hands yeah i think it's good that we're setting this up later uh setting this up for now but yeah. we should definitely start talking more about shiga's ideology maybe in the coin toss scene which we'll get to in a bit mm. um the next character we're introduced to is it's interesting because these two guys are introduced in a very similar way in a sense of how resourceful they both are so the next guy we're introduced to is effectively our archetypal Western hero. He's got a big handlebar mustache. He's got cowboy boots. He's got a gun. He's got a hat. You know, he's got all the good. Uh, he's got all the good material. And um, so this is Llewellyn Moss, as played by what's his face? Josh Brolin. Josh Brolin of Thanos fame. Of Thanos fame, yes. Um, Josh Brolin is out hunting deer when he runs into something he really shouldn't. He doesn't just run into it. I, I, I find it interesting as well, the way he comes across it again. Um, he is, he shot something else. He shot this deer that's kind of straggling off and he's trying to track it and follow it. Yeah. And he kind of accidentally mm. <laughs> instead yeah. tracks his way to this um, yeah, kind of he's following. That's just happened. He's following the bloodstains of the deer, which at some point cross over with the bloodstains of a dog, which leads him back to a place where there's a couple of trucks lying out in the desert. So it's heavily implied mm. that what happened here is you had a Mexican gang running um, dope across the border, met up with presumably an American gang with money. There was some disagreement. Shots were fired, and 
this is the scene that Moss finds him in. This is what I was talking about earlier, where it's opaque. We don't have any sense of what happened here. It's literally, mm. this is a point where Moss has basically intruded in a world he wasn't meant to see, in a way. And this is something um, my girlfriend pointed out, where that scene has a very liminal feeling, in the sense that mm. it very much feels like he's in between places at this point. Like, it's a very stark lighting um there's very little sound apart from the atmosphere and it's got a quite not even a lonely feeling but it's very everything's very still almost like something's waiting to happen yeah it feels a bit like a waiting room and i think as well we have the we have i think you know we have the cars as well and the, in this dusty western landscape that's just otherwise been populated by animals so again mm. it's kind of the it, you know that kind of feels like the past because it's this barren land but it feels more modern <laughs> because it's got these cards and also and i wanted to introduce something here um, it, you have that kind of kind of feeling, I think, because that kind of mood, because it it shows you sort of the whole tracking and him walking mm. across the whole the Landscape. whole scene of this yes. kind of um, fight that's just gone down. And mm. I wanted to introduce something, and and I think it shows up a lot through this film, which is um, the because I want to see it principle. Yeah, um, which is something James James Cameron's talked about. Okay, um, and James Cameron was talking about. There's this really big, there's really long um, sequence where I think they're like sort of riding animals or whatever in um, in Avatar. Yeah. And the studio was like, we want to get rid of this because it does nothing for the plot and it's like ten minutes long. You know. Yeah. And he was like, yes, you've checked your box like a good studio executive should. It does nothing for the plot, really. He goes, but I want to see it. And he said, <laughs> and because I want to see it. And I think it's just an interesting thing to see. Mm. I think there's going to be audience members who are going to want to see this. Yeah. And this idea goes much back, I think, further back to Kubrick um, with 2001. There are so many sequences where, from a narrative perspective, if David Mamet, uh, who's you know one of the you know kind of the slickest, cleanest you know writers, that's kind of his philosophy. If it if it's if it doesn't if it can be cut, it should be cut. Um, you know. He he had you know he he would not be having these sequences in there like you know the two thousand and one there's so many sequences of just kind of menial tasks even if they're important being done which you could have easily fast forward yeah. fast forwarded through but people want to see them and they're what make the movie great and I would argue the same thing with No Country for Old Men and this sequence in particular we see him walk across the whole field and we see and we see a very long tracking sequence with no dialogue which we could have easily fast forwarded through and made this a lot quicker but they chose to show all of it what you're saying is that they should have killed their darling well they should have yeah should have killed their <laughs> darling yeah, um, yeah. Got, I, got rid of the whole sequence now i i don't disagree with what you're talking about but what i feel scenes like this are very important for setting tone as much as narrative as in there's mm. atmosphere created here there's tone so it is actually still important it's just not narratively important um, exactly that, that's what yeah. obviously that, but that's the because i want to see it i guess yeah it. i guess it's, it's, it's not i'm not saying it's like completely right. arbitrary james cameron's partly being yeah. funny when he says that yeah in uh, terms of we we want to kind of experience we want to be immersed in this kind mm. of in this in this way even if it doesn't actually yeah. serve the plot like traditional yeah. narrative should i've got a note here um it's a little after this scene like it's just the end of this scene before we get to the next one but these landscapes almost look like something out of paintings of the Old Testament. Like, there's a couple of paintings. I would have got the names of them, but they're mostly stuff showing, like, the wrath of God as he's destroying Sodom and Gomorrah and all that stuff. You've got mountain ranges and these huge um, sublime clouds raining down lightning. 
there's a bit where Moss is walking away and you get that storm cloud above the horizon. It very much evokes that sense of paintings. Like the landscape is as much a character in this film. Um, if we're talking about narrative, though, what I like about this scene is that it sets up that Moss sort of no knows to an extent what he's doing. So there's a bit where the first thing he starts doing is taking away people's guns. Like he sees a gun, he immediately goes for it, takes out the ammo, reloads it, checks it's still working, holds onto it. He comes across one survivor, a man in a car who's just asking for water. And there's mm -hmm. a there's a very subtle scene where he's he's gonna go for the guys. Um, he picks up a semi-automatic right um, machine gun, and he's gonna go for the um, the gun like the the ammunition clip in the guy's front pocket. And he's sort of just waiting to see how the guy reacts before he takes it. Um, but you know, our, our our dude Moss, our top boy, our our rugged individual survivor. He's got some brain cells, and they start working. He's like, "Wait a minute! There would have been money at this thing. There would have been a final man. You know, there's there's people shooting. At least someone would have stood up." So your boy goes a walking, and he comes across a tree with a dead dude under it, and this dude has literally a bag full of money, a whole goddamn box full of moolah, and uh, well, Moss does what presumably a lot of people would do in this situation and take it firstly my question is to you zach if you found this bag of money how long would you last before someone killed you um i would die almost immediately i think i would die <laughs> like a couple hours after getting home it would just be how long could yeah. they track me i'm not i probably lie. wouldn't i probably yeah. wouldn't even really think to hide or move or know where to do that i'd probably just they'd probably just knock on my door i'd open it and they'd shoot me in the head <laughs> it's probably more i think we're giving ourselves credit i don't think we're even getting out of the desert like you and i it's we don't know frankly we don't know what we're doing in this sense if there's no ordnance survey map and i don't have a compass one of us is probably going to get lost and bitten by a snake Probably, yeah. probably, but but also probably if I saw that amount of money um, lying around, yeah. I probably wouldn't take it for myself. I mean, yeah, I, I, I would kind of know this probably has bad connotations mm. that come with this. I'm not going to do this at yeah. Yeah. <laughs> for the most part. I'd at least buy a burrito with it. At least buy a burrito. <laughs> just, 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 just take like a just have enough for lunch. Yeah. Um. So, you know, Moss not give water to this dude. He doesn't help anyone. He just snatches the money and gets the hell out of Dodge, where he returns mm. to his um, trailer and his wife, Carla Jean. So this is something interesting, and it just goes to the way Cormac McCarthy writes, which is Carla Jean is actually given more agency just through the language of film. The way McCarthy writes her and a lot of the female characters is he never uses her name when saying what she does in the third person so Luella Moss it says stuff like Moss picks up the money uh, Moss does that yeah etc etc yeah, Carla yeah. Jean it's always she her it's it, he uses mm -hmm. pronouns rather than the words yeah you get that it's interesting because you get when you're reading it you're in Moss's perspective even though it's in third person but just by the way we're now shown her as a character on the film, she's immediately given more agency in a in a strange sense, just by taking out that use of language. In the book, she doesn't necessarily feel like a important character until the very end. However, I'd argue that once you take away that use of language, she is set up as quite an important character in the film. Yeah, I, I, that's an interesting, because I haven't... Yeah, full disclosure, I haven't read the book. Um, 
and to be honest, I do I do feel it's like a thing of like she's an interesting supporting character, but I don't I don't until the end, um, which you know is a really great scene, mm. uh, see her as like a super kind of important character or super kind of I, I think I think she's kind of you know emotionally important in some sense, weirdly yeah. with the sheriff even more than Moss, you know, mm. a lot of the time. Applied in the um, film, but it's more obvious in the book that Moss is uh, definitely a few years older than her, and it's implied that mm. he might have, you know, he might have had a fling with her and then married her out of more of a sense of obligation at times. Yeah. Because <laughs> Moss decides um, he's lying in bed, he's having a think, he's, he does his manly, God damn it, he goes to the sink, he gets some water for the dude who's been out dying in the desert for about, I don't know, like five hours at this point. Um, Carla Jean comes in, asks where he's going, and he says, tell my mother I loved her, or I love her. Uh, he doesn't say he loves her. He doesn't really have a good goodbye for her. He's sort of just, alright, bye. Um, yeah. Which I find quite interesting in their relationship. And I want to go back to this about something Sugar says later in the film. Um, which I find quite interesting. Um... But anyway, Moss has a big, like a big milk carton of water. He's going back to, he's going back to the, the shootout. It's late at night now. And you can see right behind him is the silhouette of his truck. And silently pulling up besides it is another truck. And we see a couple of guys get out and immediately slash his tires. So yeah. Moss has got him caught, got himself caught in some big trouble. Um, something, something my girlfriend pointed out to me was, until this point, like a lot of the film, you could actually watch as a silent film almost and still more mm. or less get what's going on. Like the visual language is so good, you can get the plot almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I thought that as well. There are so many silent sequences. And again, actually, it's kind of going back to like, you know, I mentioned Howard Hawks earlier, yeah. big Western director. Um, he did Rio Bravo. And um, the opening section of Rio Bravo has this completely silent opening five minutes completely silent no dialogue and it really feels like these sequences kind of feel like a howard hawks movie to some extent um where it's just that you know going back to that really classical form you know that almost hitchcockian idea of you know the you know dialogue is just a sound mm. um amongst other sounds yeah you know the important thing is to be able to be able to visually kind of read the film and yeah, the film is excellent at doing that to the point and doesn't use dialogue for so much of it. Yeah. And it's really simple in the way it communicates this idea. I wrote this down as a note. Uh, I said, like, it's, there's like beautiful simplicity. It's some of the best basic stuff you will ever see. So, yeah. In terms of communication with landscapes, there's almost, um, again, the landscapes almost feel like they shot like an Anthony Mann film. He was a big Western director back in the 50s. And, um, John Patterson with Guardian, he even compared their style to this directly. Um, where again, he was the same thing, really brilliant visual communication, especially with landscapes, really traditional landscape framing that they've got in this film, you know, kind of uh, high horizon or low horizon, sort of that type of thing. Also, yeah. and with specifically this sequence, um, when he is chased out of this scene. Yeah, he, yeah, he's chased all the way till sunrise. Man's been man runs across an entire desert yeah. chased by it's like a Dodge Charger with headlights. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and it, when he obviously like kind of falls off a cliff after the car, they send the dog after him. Oh god, yeah. And now this dog this dog scene uh, and I talk about this beautiful simplicity is it's a super tense bit when mm. the dog's running at him and he's trying to load his gun. Yeah. But there are only three shots in the film actually yeah. 
like cats do. There's there's a kind of medium close up on Moss. There's a sh kind of a you know a kind of like a medium shot of the dog, and then there's a close up on his hands. And it just intercuts between these three shots mm. until the dog is you know, unfortunately yeah. for dog lovers uh, eventually shot and killed. Um, I mean, I'm not gonna lie. And... I was once attacked by a dog in a swimming pool, so this scene had me quite tense, and I was very happy to see that dog die. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I sympathize for Josh Brolin here because he said during recording they actually had quite a nasty dog on set, and effectively he had, I think he had dog treats inside his clothes, and they made him do this take a lot. Like the guy had to run through the water as he was chased by a dog acting feral, and it was only at the last minute that like the trainer would call it away. So I can relate. This is a stressful situation. Yeah, yeah, I, it is a stressful yeah. Situation. <laughs> and the editing makes that even more stressful. Oh just, God, it's like, great. Such basic mm. shots it's just it's cutting between kind of exactly when you think the dog's close you know oh my god is he going to load the gun in time you yeah because it's come back to the close-up and you know stuff like that it's it's really really brilliant simple work and there are so many scenes in this film which are just shot reverse shot where they're edited and directed so well in terms of performance and and, and the other kind of composition of the set design around them yeah um that it, it's just it's just really beautifully simple uh and yeah you know kind of shows how you don't have to overcomplicate things and you can still make absolutely great scenes like this one so Moss shoots the dog and gets away, and we cut to our boy, our our podcast icon, <laughs> Anton yeah. Chigurh, pulling up to a petrol station, probably for one of the most interesting scenes in the film. So Sugar come, Chica comes in and begins almost intimidating the store owner after the guy asks him if he's come out from Texas. So obviously Sugar is a hitman. He doesn't want to leave a record. But there's some interesting bits in this scene. For example, Sugar gets quite irate when he learns that this guy inherited the land from his wife, which is something quite interesting. He starts to bully this guy after he says, I need to start closing. When are you going to close? Now now is not a time. That's quite a good delivery. Mm -hmm. And it's quite interesting, um, Bardem's performance. He seems very reluctant to do this in the same way that you're reluctant to take out the bins this feels like a chore to him like he just he sighs and he goes into his pocket and he picks out a coin and he says mm. basically call it when the guy says what am i putting up well what do i stand to win he says everything and what, what i didn't click, click the first time i watched this he doesn't frame it in terms of lose so mm. in shiga's mind you've basically already lost until confirmed otherwise. Right. What I find interesting is, this is where we should probably start talking about Shiga's ideology. Shiga is very much a fatalist. Mm. He definitely believes that everything is effectively determined and he's not responsible for his actions, which is why he operates with this coin toss. The coin is going to decide whether he kills someone or not. You could take it as him like rubbing, washing his hands as responsibility, but it's quite interesting how he frames it that you don't necessarily lose your life. You basically win more time. So you could almost see it mm -hmm. as, in his mind, everyone's effectively dead at this point, and he's not making a difference. I didn't notice him framing it like that, but I kind of get the idea, because I guess he also you know kind of sees it as like a chain reaction. So it is kind of like, you know, that just the classic kind of you know way people see... Uh, people who argue against the existence of free will sort of see it in terms of everything is just a chain reaction. It's just, you know, 
this response to this stimulus then creates this response and this mm. and then you know that creates its own response and then you know and it's just and it's just a chain reaction and yeah. you know multiple times he sort of says you know well events brought yeah. me here and he's also brought yeah things brought me here he talks about the coin he says what's the date on the coin it's been traveling for 30 years to get here so he yeah. almost he definitely believes in a predetermined outcome yeah. and it, he says it's the state, same way i got here as well yeah the, i got here the same way the coin did but yeah What's also interesting is when he talks to characters later in the film, he always talks to them as if they're deaf and his almost success is a predetermined factor. Like he says, I know where the money will be. I will have it or it will be here, mm. which is going back to the idea of him as a psychopath. He is very believable in the sense that he's not a psychopath in like the goofy um, like the schlocky sense of like, oh, he's crazy. He's just wacky. Yeah. He's you know, an like, axe murderer. Yeah, like, you know. he's not yeah. like fucking Jared Leto's Joker with tattoos that say damaged and randomly like kills people. Yeah, 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 yeah. He has an ideology, or at least he's convinced himself he has an ideology. And, mm. you know, that's what makes him quite scary for our boys, including Sheriff Bell, who we're about to get to. Sheriff Bell is a very traditional man. And someone mm. like Chigurh is alien to this dude. I mean, is that how you read it? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that definitely, again, you know, there's this thing with um, uh, with Sheriff Bell where he's kind of appealing to, you know, that more traditional morality. And yeah, with Chigurh, it is that clear kind of sense of fatalism and a, and a bizarre kind of internal logic. I mean, mm. people sort of say later in the film about how he has his own kind of principles that he operates under. Yes. And and again, he, he's like kind of almost weirdly kind of logical in his own sense, almost like, you know, now isn't a time. You know, yeah. you, if you go, you know, he kind of has a clear definition yeah. of what time well, is. He, he feels, and he feels very offended when the guy says, I inherited my land. Like, yeah. he almost, he acts like this guy almost didn't earn it in a way or mm -hmm. that he's cheated it from someone. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it's like that bizarre kind of like internal logic kind of principle. Yeah. Which is which is like, like it seems like logically kind of coherent yeah. as its own yeah. kind of thought. And but it, yeah. it does operate quite bizarrely in the yeah. real world. Because also he's he's weirdly nice at times, sometimes. Like mm. um I'll sort of jump ahead in the film, but there's a bit where Moss is walking being chased by Sugar for a hotel, and we've seen that he's killed the owner of the hotel but not the cat he treats kids yeah. all right there is that one bit where he shoots a bird out of spite but um i'm not entirely sure what that's about he just seems like he's being an asshole yeah he, yeah he does kind of have his own sort of thing but again you kind of like was the cat spared by his coin toss yeah random maybe drops of it all. yeah um it's kind of yeah again yeah. it's kind of like but who gets killed yeah. who doesn't but also like, you know he's a bit of a petty bitch in that he will kill you just for inconveniencing him um maybe mm. he just didn't like that bird yeah, yeah, and and he he does kill people as well earlier in, in earlier in the film yeah. from just quite, he, quite flippantly. Sugar's very open about killing his bosses. So we see Sugar being brought to the site of the drug deal gone wrong by mm. two guys in the Dodge Charger, and he basically gets the details at the scene. He takes Luella Moss's license plate, and then he just shoots both these guys straight up. Yep. And again, we're not necessarily given a reason why. Oh, one important note is that he is also given a transponder. There is a tracker inside the money. We don't know that yet as an audience, but we can basically figure it out. We see mm. at the same time Moss figures it out, but Shiga basically has an upper hand throughout this entire film through modern technology. So Moss 
Moss is interesting in that he's definitely got the the frontiersman surviving on your wits. Like uh, he knows how to use guns. He's very he's a welder, so he's good with his hands and he's clever in that sense. Doesn't matter. Shiga's got a tractor yeah, on him. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's kind of and I, I want to bring up there's two points I want to hit on there. One is kind of I just had this thought of it's almost kind of like a, a reverse a reverse Dracula in a way. In terms of instead of he's this kind of spectre from the past, yeah. in which characters are trying mm. to use sort of the modernism and modern yeah. technology to kind of defeat this kind of spectre of the past who holds sort of this mystical power yeah. of the past in some way. Mm. It's like he's got this kind of techno power yeah. of the future, and you know, and Moss is going having to sort yeah. of fight back, kind of you know, as 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 hard as he can, kind yeah. of almost you know struggling maybe it, maybe yeah. pointlessly with the kind of grit and stuff that he has from that but lifestyle. It's like in a Civ game where you haven't spent a lot of time leveling up your civilization, and someone's bum rushed the Age of Steel, so you've still got bows and arrows, and someone's rocked up in a naval yeah. destroyer, so. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter how ideologically righteous Moss or Bella or how like frontiersmen man like how traditional they are, they're gonna get bulldozed by some by Shigo or someone like him at some point down the line. Um, yeah, exactly. It's that kind of in yeah. inevitability yeah. going back to the fatalism that the future is going to take over the past. Yeah. And it's quite fun that in the next scene, after you know, Shiga's set up with a very modern looking gun with a silencer, he's got a transponder, he's got a dodge charger of like a very modern looking car. The next scene, mm. we are introduced with Bell, who's following the trail of Shiga in his old car towards the site of the drug deal again, on horseback. So he's very much the image of the traditional sheriff. Yeah. 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 Again, again from the iconography to the kind of things he says, he is very. Yeah. Um, but you know, yeah, he's, he's hyper traditional. Yeah, and it's quite interesting that when they, when the sheriffs, when the law, when the lawmen get to the site of the deal. Um, his deputy says execution here pointing at the guy she killed wild west there and it's almost like yeah. he's drawing a comparison hey this is modern this is old yeah, this is something new this is something we haven't we've seen before it's something that's invaded the yeah. space yeah almost. you know they're right next mm, to each other now yeah you know that's, execution yeah. in wild west and that's sort of interesting going back to that point about this being a liminal space in that it's very much between modernity and the old world yeah, and I just thought of a, I, I meant to bring this up yeah. as well. It goes back to the point that kind of happens at the start about there's almost this crossover where one's going to take over the other. Yeah. It's up right from the start, and I really like this line at the beginning, is that um, Sheriff Bell talks about his father yeah. and him being sheriffs at, the same, time. at yeah. the same time. And so he's an older sheriff, and he and you know, yeah, and, 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 and uh, Bell yeah. is, is a younger is a younger sheriff. Yeah, and at the same they time, there's this the crossover. Yeah. there's going to be this moment where they occupy, and then the old mm. man dies. You know, and in the next Inevitably. scene, you talk about crossovers, but this happens a lot in this film where people miss each other all the goddamn time. So, Sugar comes to Moss's house only for Moss's, Moss's skedaddled ages back. He sent his wife, Carla Jean, off to be with her mum. And, you know, rather than go with them, Moss is doing his own thing, basically. He's um, going his own way. And Sugar goes to Moss's house, which is where we get our lovely podcast thumbnail of him sitting down with the milk. <laughs> it's, it's Monster Energy in the thumbnail, but it's milk in the, in the thing. Um, I honestly don't know which is stranger. Yeah, I feel like Sugar's 
the type of guy who eats nutritiously out of necessity. Like he's not he's not probably eating junk food because he needs fitness and he needs good health, but also he's mm. not going to be following a good recipe. He's going to be eating nutritious food for the sake of keeping healthy. So he's going to have that milk. Yeah. He's got good bones. So yeah, he so he breaks into Moss's house and he just gets the with milk the cattle fridge. gun. Yeah. With the cattle gun, and yeah. he just drinks the milk. There's this weird trope people have noticed. Yeah. Um, I've not done much research into this idea, but I think it's interesting. About uh, villains drinking milk is a common thing. Oh god, it's um, just like what's so, that? So, 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 the fucking Homelander, Nazi. Yeah, the Nazi and um, uh, Inglorious Bastards. Yep, yeah, um, Clockwork Orange as well. <laughs> There's loads of That's milk weird. villains, and I wondered if you have a theory about why. Oh, of villains drinking milk all the time. Well, let's go to a very Freudian analysis. These are grown men drinking milk. Yeah. I want to return to the mother. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know. I think it's just one of those... I think it's just... It's kind of weird seeing a grown man drink milk. I'm not going to lie. It's just off-putting. Yeah. And at times, it's kind of funny. Um, like in this scene where you've just mm. got him yeah. sitting down having a milk. Um, yeah. But... It's also interesting, he's invading Moss's space. He's very much like a, a slasher villain from the 80s. Um, mm -hmm. actually, he reminded me a lot of the original Terminator, um, where the original Terminator is not cool, he is a pervert. He very much feels like the type of guy who would stalk your older sister. Like, he's in a shabby, yeah, yeah. he's dressed shabby, he's sort of hunched, and he's a bit gross, weird-looking. Like It's mm -hmm. that same sense of, one of the things, I haven't seen many slasher films, but one of the things I know about them is, most of the famous ones are very much something weird has come into the suburban neighborhood. And yeah. here comes Anton Chigurh, a man from Mars with his modern cattle gun, literally coming into your house and drinking your milk. Yeah, and yeah. also that aspect of kind of, you know, the creepiness of it. Voyeurism yeah. is such a big part of slasher movies as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. Often, often, I mean, yeah. I think, we, you know, it is a little bit more distance from the slasher movie in this sense, but we often, you know, in slasher films kind of get this POV shot this of the killer, and we kind of get that, you know, him looking through the window and, mm. you know, him kind of, peeking at people and this kind of has that a similar sense of that yeah in terms of he's just invading space he's kind of just walking around moss's house yeah. and just sort of um, being able to yeah invade his privacy and i say they miss each other because a couple of minutes later sheriff bell and his deputy rock up to my funniest the funniest scene in this film <laughs> where they lines. see the milk and they just go oh that's aggravating it's still that's sweating <laughs> and then, and then oh, i love i love, oh, I love sheriff, the line we just missed him I love the line where the the, 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 young, the young the young deputy chef says, um, you know, we, we should we need to call this in. Like, and then and then and then Tommy Lee Jones obviously points out they don't know what he looks like. Yeah. It's like, what are we gonna say? Um, you know, looking for a man who has recently, recently drunk, drunk milk. milk. <laughs> it's just like oh, it's such a brilliant like, again, that's the thing. It's yeah. a very serious film. Very but there's serious, some little like, goofy moment. <laughs> Yeah, hints of comedy, yeah. but that feel realistic, you know. Yeah. Like you felt like he could say that in that scene in yeah. real life, you know. Or it's the bit where like he asks him to draw his piece and he says, "What about you?" He's like, "I'm gonna be behind you." The the deputy kind of reminds me of Andy from Twin Peaks in this a little bit. Like he's got that sort of goofy persona about him, and I can definitely feel, I could definitely see a, a line in this. Feels like a thing in out of Twin Peaks where it's like, Agent Cooper, we should call this in. He's like, Andy, what are we gonna say? Looking for a man who has recently drunk milk? No, and then. Cooper's gonna have a weird dream yeah, yeah. about, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> how how quickly yeah. would Cooper survive against Sugar? I don't know. I feel like he would understand Sugar too much. Yeah. Like I feel like he would be able to talk at his level, and it would just really like be unpleasant <laughs> for him mm. for Sugar. I feel like. Yeah, I feel like Cooper's immediately gonna call bullshit on the coin. 
Google Sheet. I'm going to reference some Buddhist yeah. kind of counter argument to it. Anton, there are some monks in the Himalayas who believe that everything is predetermined. What I say is, a man is what he makes it, and then, like, sugar comes out to him and blows him away with the, the air rifle. Poor guy. Oh, poor old He'll live. He'll be fine. He'll be back for future. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he gets up like evil Cooper. This is the point where my notes start getting more interspersed because I just sort of watched this film. It's not like Captain Fantastic where I was actually more... Um, I was sort of not enjoying it, so I was taking a lot of notes. I, I've i just missed several whole scenes. Um, but basically, after this point, we see what Moss is up to. He's gone to a motel. He's booked out mm. a room, or at least he's booked out two rooms. Yep. He puts the, the big suitcase into an air duct and he makes sure that he can reach it from the other side of the room. So this is going back to what I was saying about this guy is quite the frontiersman in that he is resourceful. He's not mm. stupid. He knows what he's doing. And with that, he is able to, he is able to um, get away yeah. from Shigar. In, in, and kind of the way that that sequence is editing, again, brilliant editing, you really, you really think that Moss is in imminent danger the way yeah. it's edited. You think that he has seconds to get out. Yeah. But in reality... He just drives yeah. around and says, can I have another room? Um, what's yeah. also interesting, so Moss shows up to the motel and there is a truck parked outside. And we are immediately led to believe, oh, he's been found by Sugar. Because at mm. this point, we also cut to scenes of Sugar's transponder starting to beep. Yeah. Sugar also gets a room in the motel, again, in a funny scene where he's just looking at the, the price list and then back at the motel mm. owner. Like, I love imagining Sugar doing average things like buying milk or getting a haircut, stuff like that, where he's like, Batman has definitely not had a haircut in a long while. He does it himself. Probably. Yeah, he gets, Probably. His, he gets his mum to do it. Um, th his so Sugar gets a room, and what he immediately starts doing is he starts testing the width of the walls at certain points. And mm. he's prepared, so he has a silenced pistol, a uh, silenced rifle. He takes off his shoes. He takes off his quite big cowboy boot shoes, so he's walking barefoot. He breaks into Moss's room where there are three, four guys from the cartel. And yeah. I, I really didn't get this, but what he's done when he's checking the walls, he knows there's good places for people to hide, and he just immediately starts yeah. shooting through these walls. Um, this is also quite a surprising bit for you know yourself as an audience, because you're expecting Moss to be there, or at least it to be yeah. an empty place. And it's just That's some... Yeah, and it's just some randos. Again, like, because he's with, missed him. Yeah, he's missed him, and it's, and it's getting down to the craft of the film. Yeah. The editing. Yeah, you because you're cutting back and forth to Moss pulling through the um, pulling through his uh, briefcase mm. this moment for it, and so you kind of think, oh, he's got that, you know, he's got to get out, sort of thing. You feel like it's a panicked moment. Yeah. Um, in reality, when he breaks down the door, Mexicans yeah. are there. It's so controlled. It's a completely, yeah. Entirely, completely different scene. Yeah. And also, I want to just hitch on a point you said there. You said about matching the rooms. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And yeah. something you didn't notice. That's there's a lot of stuff like that where the, you, the, they're not the actions of characters are not explained through dialogue or no. really made really super super explicit. But from the visual kind of language, you are made to figure it out. Same yeah. with the the, the the detective for the you know for yeah, the money. Yeah, we're not shown what it is. Same, yeah, yeah, you just kind of work out through just yeah the visual language yeah. of the movie what it's doing. And again, it's putting the onus on um, a spectator to be mm. engaged but, in the film. But this is also something interesting where it makes Sugar and Moss feel like real characters in that we get the sense they have a history outside of this film. So Sugar has definitely done this before. He knows what he's doing. Yeah. But also Moss has Moss knows his way around guns. He knows his way... He thinks he knows his way around someone like Sugar. So they're both yeah. 
they have histories these people that is just hinted at through their actions yeah 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 and it, yeah and again again that yeah. is shown without them needing to explain that it's mm. just yeah it's just yeah yeah the visuals which um, is pretty brilliant sugar makes an interesting discovery as well which chiga sugar i can't remember sugar yeah sugar sugar yeah he makes an interesting discovery which is that the cartel also has a transponder whereupon we cut Mm. to i'm not gonna lie this is one the i always forget about i forget this character exists we cut to woody harrelson meeting a guy in a dallas texas building yep and they have a this is where we get probably the closest thing we'll ever get to exposition about sugar this is a weird scene because you half expect these guys to be government in a weird way. Especially Woody Harrelson has a bit of a reputation for playing cops. Like he pl- he plays a guy in True Detective. He sort of has that. He's dressed a bit like yeah. a sheriff in this as well. So you're almost expecting him to be. They mentioned DEA earlier in the film as well. So I when I first mm-hmm. saw this scene, I forgot who he was. And I thought, oh, he's CIA or FBI or something like that. Um yeah. He, the way he discusses sugar, it's more like he's discussing a force of nature or an elusive, almost like an elusive predator. Where he says, um, he says like, how deadly are we talking? Like Black Plague? Like it's just an event that happens and you can't do anything about it. And it's almost, mm. he's talking about him almost like witnessing um, an astrological phenomenon where he's like, where was the last time you saw him? And he's saying, I remember the date exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And like, this is kind of, kind of goes back to the, um, Slasher comparisons, weirdly, or the mm. horror comparisons. Okay, yeah, yeah. Where Carson Wells almost acts as that savant character mm. who oh, he's he like, knows um, the threat. He knows the villain. Yeah, he's like um, Donald Pleasance in, um, in Halloween. Halloween. Yeah, yeah. He's like, yeah, who, who knows? But no one usually in these films, no one believes him. Everyone's kind of a bit like, yeah, we we can stop him. You know, we can hire you to to do yeah. something about he's it. Like the, you know? Yeah, he's the closest to the and, crazy old man. And even and even Moss has this kind of arrogant kind of arrogance yeah. about you know I'll stop Sugar you know yeah. when he later on because I think it's important to briefly kind of yeah jump, uh, ahead, jump yeah. forward um, where he you know he talks to Moss um, basically trying to persuade him to you know ditch the money yeah um, and accept accept protection um, and but he's kind of like no 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 I'll you know I'll 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 mess you know I'll mess up Sugar I'll, figure it I'll out be myself. fine yeah 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 despite the knowledge that Carson Wells has of yeah. But, yeah, that understanding of them. But also, I feel like Carson Wells, um, Woody Harrelson's character, has also underestimated Sugar. Mm-hmm. Like, he doesn't know Sugar. Sugar immediately gets the upper hand on him, which is which makes Sugar quite terrifying. In that, even the closest thing to an expert on this guy is immediately bulldozed by him. Yeah, yeah, and this is an interesting point about whether it's kind of like. Oh, he just gets bulldozed by him, or whether it's bad writing. So this is one of the criticisms okay, that I heard yeah. from my from my cousin. Okay, yeah. again, he obviously watches kind of you know has a more maybe more mainstream look at things. Yeah, yeah. he was like, Shigur just finds him. Yeah, like he was like, why why is he able to just find him? Every other character, they have to, you know, they have yeah. to track things. They have to they explain how the thing. Shigur yeah. just finds Carson Wells. Yeah, and it's a bit lazy. Uh, he he sort of he argued I, that it was kind of like yeah. naturally it just kind of it's it a bit kind odd. Of yeah, his character out when he was actually yeah. maybe making a significant um you know change in the yeah. way the narrative was going. I the only thing I can say about that is um we'll get to this later. Basically, Carson mm. Wells shows up to a place where Sugar is known to have been. It's the Mexican border, right. and the only thing I have to say in that case is. 
I think Sugar's actually expecting someone else at this point, and he knows about Carson Wells. So I yeah. think what Sugar has assumed is basically, I if I make some noise, someone's going to come, so I'm just going to wait for them. Yeah, um, I know. I, I, yeah. I agree. So also, yeah. he did. He does have this sort of. They do from Carson Wells' perspective set up this ability that Sugar is very, very, very good at tracking and you know, yeah. can find people in a few hours if they're, yeah. you know, yeah, making any noise at all. Um. I mean, to be honest, this is, we might as well get to this because this is the next scene where um, yeah. Moss discovers, Moss goes to El Paso, Texas. So the border of Mexico, whereupon he discovers that inside his box is a tracker. Um, mm. And there's some great, this is, this is shot like a horror film where early on he says to the, uh, the desk clerk, can you warn me if any, you know, um, swing dick comes by? He hears some crashing downstairs. As soon as he's discovered the transponder, he goes to the phone, picks it up, rings front desk, and we just hear it play out downstairs for a long time. It is a long scene. What I find quite interesting is Moss's reaction. He's not scared. He's immediately in almost problem-solving mode. Like, he's like, yeah, okay. Yeah. So he's looking at the light under his door. So the, his room's in darkness. It's illuminated from the corridor. We see the outline of two boots. He's waiting with his gun. Then Sugar turns off the lights, which is such a fact. Mm. Like, he knows what Moss is doing. Yeah. Um, and I think this is great of just setting up how outmatched Moss really is. Like, we set up mm. earlier, Sugar's checking walls in buildings he's just got to to see where people... He knows instinctively where people are going to hide. Like, this man has been doing this for so long, he knows every trick in the book. And this is the closest, this is the only time really we actually see them in the same, literally in the same room together. Um, because Sugar comes through the door, Moss shoots him and then jumps out the window. And there's a flash frame of Sugar shooting the window behind him as he jumps out. In the book, mm. they actually talk. So Moss waits behind the door, Sugar comes in and he just basically pistol whips him and ties him up. Um, they have, Moss is like, like who the fuck are you and sugar's not responding um it's a but this scene is a lot better mm. in that we never really see them interact not really um yeah yeah and it, it feels a lot more impersonal because of that which seems to suit sugar's ideology yeah. it's weirdly it's so it's weirdly personal and impersonal right so because it's kind of clear with how he pursues moss specifically not even the money the way he's produced moss specific it seems personal it seems almost vindictive but yeah. the fact that we never really talk the passionless way that um yeah uh that, that, that anton sugar talks it, it it more seems like this is out of principle that he mm. needs to make this guy's yeah. life living yeah. hell he needs to kill him yeah. and this is something again that carson wells actually says earlier that he'll he'll you know, kill you for he'll inconvenience him. Kill yeah for inconveniencing him out, out of principle yeah and again that that the fact that they don't talk, they don't have that personal relationship really mm. makes it feel like his pursuit of Moss is out of principle. Yeah. The next bit is shot straight up like a horror film where, oh yeah, you know, Moss is running through the neighborhood. He is running through the safe suburbs being chased by a dark shadow. So it's very much a slasher pick. People who help him immediately die. He gets into a car with someone who is immediately, the, the back of the head is just shot out as he's driving down the street. Mm. It's... This is also the one time, not that he gets the drop on Sugar, I'd almost call it a lucky shot. So he, we see him shoot Sugar, Sugar goes down. But before his, this is something I didn't spot before. Sugar tracks Moss in the same way Moss tracked the deer at the beginning of the film. 
yeah. moss is leaving a blood trail and sugar is following it so it's mm. it's interesting that you know the hunter has become the hunted but they're reusing the same visual language of hunting yeah. in this context and it's almost moss is so almost i wouldn't i want to say dumb but he's outdated in this world to the point where sugar is just a predator there's mm. no way and moss can ever become prey uh, a predator to sugar but it is it is interesting actually because well, this bit you're talking about again is sort of another trick of the editing where you think kind of sugar might be kind of coming across yeah moss and you might be about to be up to kind of uncover him he's not and um this is one of the few times we get a pov shot from sugar's perspective mm, yeah so there's a lot of pov and kind of pov like things with moss and um sheriff bell especially in moss in this whole sequence we follow moss as he runs out the building and and we just you know Shigar's just in the background getting you know firing bullets we don't actually see Shigar. so most of the time we, it, when we're doing this whole chase sequence yeah this whole kind of horror sequence we're we, with with moss going let's uh, get away get away get away um but this one bit towards the end we actually and he's, as he's tracking moss yeah we actually go directly pov from Shigar's perspective and again, it's kind of that, um, you know, again, a little bit of slight bit of, you know, role reversal, if not, you know, completely. Yeah. Um, in, the, in terms of the visual, you know, in terms of the visual language. Yeah. Um, and again, kind of showing you kind of how, again, the kind of way perspective can be used, not always to kind of be alignment. You're not aligned with the shooter in this moment, but yeah. you're kind of, you get tricked, like yeah. he kind of gets tricked yeah. in this sequence. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we're almost... It's humanizing sugar in the sense of we are in his position for once. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we are, there is one POV shot later when he's blowing up a car, but to be honest, that's, that's something we can talk to in a bit later. Um, yeah. And also I think it's um, this moment is a moment of vulnerability. So it kind of gives mm, you hope that yeah. maybe, oh, Moss is going to overcome this. He can be the hero of the story. This isn't, you know, yeah. the, the story where uh, sugar just kills everyone. Yeah. It kind of gives you that false hope yeah but i almost get the sense that sugar is like a machine in the sense of or he's a very he's very adaptable so once moss has done this to sugar he's never going to be tricked in the same way again moss manages to run away and he gets to the mexican border um he buys a shirt he, bu he buys a jacket from who's that pudgy dude who looks like matt damon like he was in um he was in the El Camino, El Camino movie, the Breaking Bad film. Talking about Jesse Plemons? Yes, I am talking about Jesse Plemons. Yeah, because mm. um, I, I, I don't know if it's a young... Yeah. It, it just looks like a young version of that dude. Fair. Yeah, Fair. we get a bit of a sense of money corrupting people in this bit. Moss asks for a, sh a jacket. The dude asks for money. He also asks for a beer. One of his friends is like, how much are you going to pay me? So, you know, there's a little mm. bit of... Little bit of he's already given $500. Yeah. Uh, so there's a bit of, you know, a bit of yeah. greed already going on. Um, I laughed at this bit because I was joking throughout the film of like, oh, when are they going to get to Mexico and we get the yellow lighting? Um, Moss walks under some fluorescent mm. lights at the Mexican border and the screen looks very yellow. So I laughed at that. I was like, hey, they did it. Oh, yeah. And then they smash cut to, oh, what's it called? Uh, mariachi. They even smash cut to a mariachi band playing over a passed out Moss. Mm. Um, I think this is a yeah, little yeah. bit of Coen Brothers humor of taking the piss out of establishing shots of mexico where it's like oh we're in mexico arriba and you get all the the, the jolly music and such and mm. these dudes just stop playing as moss gets up and he's covered in blood he hands him a dollar as well yeah like that is not in that is i think that's the only scene added to this film 
like everything else is either tweaked from the book or cut out. This is the only bit that the Coens added in. Um, and I find it quite funny. Yeah. This is like the last gasp of their comedy career in a way, sort of showing through in this film. Mm. Yeah, it's literally just, you know, again, it's a you know, insertion of, of, of a gag, which, you know, Cormac McCarthy's probably not going to do. This is, you know, no. Coen Brothers, you know, um, thing. Cormac <laughs> McCarthy from interviews seems like the grumpiest man on the planet. Um, I have... Walt was the grumpiest man on the planet. He did, he did pass rest, away. Rest he? now, sweet summer <laughs> child of fucking 90 years old or whatever. Yeah, he had a good life. Or long life. Yeah, he did, he did seem like an absolute grump. Good on the guy. Grumpiest man alive. Uh, some, some of the, you know, grump, you know, Noam Chomsky's pretty grumpy as well, you know. <laughs> you know, hey, there's, maybe this, maybe yeah. there's a link here. Maybe there's a link. Jumpscare Chomsky. Um, <laughs> we also see what um, so Moss and Moss and Sugar have basically um, they've been in a firefight. They've they've gone to they've gone to heal for a bit. They've gone to like um, level themselves up or whatever. Sugar steals um, supplies from a clinic by blowing up a car. Again, this is where the POV shot comes in, where he's just looking up and down the street. And then he... Again, very, again, very planned as well. Yeah, again, like, that kind he of, like, knows he's what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. Yeah. And he confidently just strolls into the pharmacy when yeah. it blows up. It, it's either like he's almost done this before, or he's just planned it out in his head to such an extent that he can just carry it out. Yeah, um, exactly. What I... What I found, this is something I've actually started picking up on, um, with the especially with the glut of Marvel films we've got. Sugar is fit, but he's not buff in the sense he's he's got like he's got like flabby bits around his stomach, but he's a big guy. Like he's quite muscly under all that. He's not the weird like shrink wrapped buffness you get with a lot of male actors these days. He looks like a mm. real person in the sense of. You know he's not as a model, but he could definitely pound you into the ground, which I find quite interesting. It just adds to that believability of him. Like he's sort of he looks a bit old man pudgy at times, but he's got like a weird mm. like strength to him. Um, yeah, it's all that. Un- it's also just makes him a bit less understandable. In terms of he's got like an odd body type. Yeah. He's not like got a conventional. Because if it were like, oh, he's like a he's, tall, yeah, you know, really, you know, a tall, really skinny guy. It's like, oh, he's he's he, you know, he's deaf. He's kind of a you know, he's a yeah. demon. But I mean, if you understood he's a tall, really muscular but, guy, yeah. then it would be like, okay, he's a classic hitman enforcer kind yeah. of character. But he's sort but of again, just... he doesn't fit into yeah. any specific that kind of model. Quite. That's why I mean, he feels believable. Like he feels just like a guy. Mm. Um, just a guy who is really good at murdering people. Yeah, <laughs> no, yeah, not your average guy, but he feels yeah, yeah. like a person who could exist. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, he's very good at performing self surgery as well. Like he knows yeah, what he's doing. He doesn't flinch. It's some of the most grim scenes in the Ooh. film, and the special effects, the makeup, is really, really good. good. When he's taking yeah. the bullets out oh, again, it's like yeah. he's done it before. He probably and... has done it before. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's that it's a whole same thing. He's he yeah. knows that he's been through this. This for him isn't anything significant no. in like his life and career. Yeah, which but I, for everyone yeah. else, this is the peak of yeah. The most uh, interesting this thing is happened to them. This is literally another day on the job for him. Whereas for Moss, this is a life and death situation. Sugar to to Sugar, Moss is dead. Like it's just a matter of time of getting to that point. He's just wait. Yeah. He's just performing the actions he needs to do to close that time gap. Mm, um, exactly. Yeah. And after this, we get the bit where, basically, this is Moss's last chance to get out, effectively. Where um, Mr. Wells, is it? Um, Carson Wells. Carson Wells. Basically comes up to Moss and delivers, effectively, the thesis of the movie, which is, you are out of your depth. You do not know what you're doing here. 
Um, mm. It's sort of, again, Wells just doesn't say who he represents. So again, if you're if you're sort of not paying attention, he could be a government agent of some sort. He's offering to take the money off Moss's hands. Um, right. And here's something interesting that he says to Moss. Shigur has principles. Yeah. So it's interesting that Wells understands Shigur to the point where he knows he's not a psychopath or like a relent like a murder machine. He does mm. have rules he follows to an extent. Yeah, which kind of makes him yeah. scary as well because because it, it kind of like you, you can't quite predict exactly how that's going to work yeah. because like, it's like about the murder you go okay assume yeah. assume murder in all cases if you know yeah. what I mean but, whereas with, with this it goes a strange kind of internal logic yeah. it makes him far more kind of scary because 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 he can be understood but you don't yeah it's he can't he can be understood but he can't be empathized or sympathized with which is in a way scarier. Um, mm. as Sugar says later in the film people are always telling me you don't have to do this and he says that in a, in the same way of like oh, people keep saying this yeah, they're yeah. always like yeah, they always, yeah. yeah. be humane he's like he's kind of bored of hearing this shit um, mm. but it's yeah. interesting as well that Carson says you can't bargain with this guy he has a he goes back over the bridge where I should point out Moss chucked um, the money um, yes. into the, over into a river between the US-Mexico border. Um, Carson goes back to the same hotel where Moss and Shigur had a firefight at, and it's a similar scene to the first one at the police station. He's walking up the stairs, and who's coming up behind him? And this is also the first time we see, one of the few times we see Shigur smile. The only time he smiled before, mm. when he's strangling that cop, when he shoots the guy at the beginning to get his car, when he does his weird little Shrek face to the guy in the, the gas yes. station... It's so unnerving to see him smile in this way because throughout the film, he's just had this blank expression. And it's mm. like... Well, it, it, it's kind of that old thing of the expressions look... They just look, they look unrefined, almost yeah. like... It's in like, terms of like unrehearsed in some way. Like, it, yeah. like it just seems like, like they kind of just appear yeah. and appear in really strange ways that it's, feel natural to it's us. It's more like someone told... Sh Someone told Sugar what a smile should look like, mm. and he's doing it. It, I don't know how. I I guess like this guy is the closest Sugar almost has to an acquaintance or a friend. Like he, this is one of the few guys that presumably has crossed Sugar's tracks at least more than once and hasn't died or he's never going to see again. So it's almost yep. like he's like, oh, hi, I'm going to bring out one of my expressions for you in a way. Yeah, he's doing it. He's yeah. doing it solid. He's bringing out like the fine china. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and and, and without that, you know, he does. You know, he doesn't just murder him straight there. He does take him yeah. into Carson's own room and sits him down. Yeah, he's conversating with him. Um, we... Carson does try and does try and bargain with Sugar, despite saying it doesn't work. Um, which yeah, you can either take that as Carson's fall into the fallacy of like I understand this guy, but to be mm. honest. I think Carson understands him all too well, and this is just a panic mode. This is, yeah. I, I need to try something. I think it's the thing we we're kind of talking about with Captain Fantastic, Woodley. You know, it's mm. that thing of you know when you know when Ben gives in to taking money from yeah. Jack. It's kind of like it's where you know principles and logic meet, kind of panic and practicality. Yeah, it's kind of that sort of thing. It's like you a know, hail mary, basically. Yeah, um, exactly. So Carson dies very quickly he's known in the film for a couple of scenes 
And the way mm. he dies is interesting. The phone in the room starts ringing. It's left for a minute, and then Sugar doesn't even blink. He just shoots Carson. And it's yep. shot that um, Sugar's in the mid-ground. The back of Carson's chair is in the foreground. We see the chair shake. We don't even hear him cry out or anything. He's just gone. He dies effectively mm. off-screen because he is blocked by the chair. He is just yeah. He's just gone from the film. Yeah, and it's interesting that the him, the way he exactly dies is not sort of the visual detail that is kind of picked up on quite cutely in this in this scene. Yeah. It's and this is something that we've been meaning to talk about. The boots. Is Anton Sugar's boots. As yeah. the blood pours away from Carson Wells' bodies mm. and Sugar is on the phone, he he lifts his boots up to avoid them the getting blood. bloody. Quite yeah. specifically. Yeah. And we see a lot of this like Sugar takes off the boots before he goes to kill the Mexican cartel in the hotel. When he's dressing his wound He's very careful about how he takes his boots off, but he's just happily to cut off his jeans. He, it's. Mm. I don't want to say he has affection for these boots, but the one thing I'd say is that, and this will come back later, he cares about how they look, or at least he doesn't want to get them dirty. Yeah, yeah. and I think that kind of goes back to that point about is he hiding behind his fatalism sort of thing? Yeah, he doesn't is this want just to get his hands dirty. Yeah, it's just a coping thing. Yeah, he doesn't want to get yeah. his really, really nice shoes dirty because that would reflect poorly yeah. on him. It would make him seem like he's done it, you know. Yeah. So the man calling Sugar is Moss. Um, Carson Wells left him the number, and this is the only time in the film where Sugar and Moss talk. And Sugar basically says, you know where I'm going. I am. I know where your wife is. I am going to go to her. Moss is like, I don't. She doesn't have the money. He says, I don't care. I want to remember this scene because it's important what Sugar says later to Carla Jean when they finally meet. But Moss says, I'm going to make you my project. Um, mm. In a sort of, in a very, you know, machoistic way. He's like, you threatened my wife. I'm not having any yeah, of yeah, this. Yeah. Um, listeners, if you're watching the film or haven't watched it, don't get attached to Moss. This is one of the last scenes when we see him, pretty much. There's not many scenes mm. after he puts down the phone that we see him again. Yeah, and this scene, I think it's important to know, hmm. he's, for almost all of it, not all of it, but almost all of it, he's facing away from the camera, hmm. which makes this, per this this interaction even less personal, it feels, and kind of the, his response almost even less personal. You know, it, it, you, know you, I, I, you kind of get the sense he doesn't, does he, he, you know, he seems to almost be pumping out his chest because he wants to beat Chiga, he wants to get away, get away with his money. Yeah. Is, is, is he really kind of like, oh, I'll make you a project because he really loves his wife that much? You know, mm. it's kind of that, again, that kind of distance we have from him as a character. And also this moment is, again, him not being, this, uh, adhering to what the savant told him. You know, earlier, yeah. Carson Wells told him don't. that told yeah. him that he would he don't don't come up don't try and beat him and yeah. that he would kill try and kill his wife. Yeah. So again, it's all coming. The you know fatalism. The whole story is coming to play yeah. when the uh, device is not heated. Yeah. Moss gets back across the the border by flashing his veteran perks. We have um, <laughs> he's just okay. questioned by American border guy, like the most border mm -hmm. dude, like. Buzz cut glasses, uniform. Yeah. Man's like completely hostile until he learns that Moss is a veteran. He's like, get this guy some clothes. Uh, so Boss, Moss is back in America, much to, as we'll find out, his own detriment. This is The next scene is quite interesting because it sort of wraps up the the opaque um, crime world plot a little bit. 
Moss, uh, not Moss, uh, Sugar goes to the building of the dude we saw earlier meeting Carson Wells, goes into the office, says, you gave the Mexicans a transponder, and shoots him. This is sort of Sugar's boss, I would yeah. say. And it's almost, it's interesting that Sugar is pissed off by basically this dude outsourcing his job in a very yeah, weird yeah. sort of way. He's a great line about it as well. He talked about, you know, you use one fine tool yeah. to achieve the job. You don't kind of disperse yeah. like this. It's kind of the one a few times. He, I, well, I guess he does it a few times, like kind of explains his logic. Yeah. Again, again it's that it's driven out of principle. This guy's his boss, really. Yeah. And he just shot him. It's, it's... in the job he's been hired to do. Again, <laughs> he's taking this, he's, he's taking yeah. this to principle. He doesn't care about the money anymore. Yeah. But it's also, it goes back to that weird obsession he has when the guy says, I inherited my farm. It's like, I don't like that. I'm gonna stop that. Mm. Um, yeah, we have also have another slight comedy moment where the boss, the crime boss, was in a conversation with someone, and um, yeah. he says that like a little pencil pusher, sort of accountant, who says to Shigo, mm. "Are you gonna kill me?" And he says, "That depends. Can you see me?" And he does his little creepy grin again, which I fucking love. That <laughs> it's so yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It's uncomfortably funny. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. That's the thing. Um, I said this was after the scene in the shop. I, I said after that, and, and again, I think it's true of the whole film. I, I said that's the funniest tense scene I've ever seen. Mm. You know, and it's kind of true of this. There's so many moments which are simultaneously kind of boring yeah. and dark here, kind of funny, but also really tense. I realize we've also forgotten to talk about the sheriff up until this point. So throughout the film, we've it's sort of not really important until now. Like it doesn't necessarily impact the plot, but it's setting up character stuff for what's about to happen. Um, we see Bell sort of trying to come to terms with what he's facing in the sense of he has lots of conversations with people about modernity or the weird world. Like he's reading a newspaper story about some people in San Francisco who killed elderly people for their pensions. And he's like, y I mean, you just can't make sense of it. You've got to laugh at it. It, it, mm. it. What it reminds me of is he's almost bargaining in a way. Like he's trying to, he's, He's in denial mm. almost. He he recognizes there's a problem, but he's trying to like make some fun out of it in a way, or he's trying to put off facing it in a sense. He's 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 dragging his feet in trying to face Shigo. Would you say that's like a a like a, a interest a rough statement of what's happening here, or do you have a different reading? Yeah, no, no. I think I think that's mostly yeah, mostly true. It's kind of like yeah, he, and again, he's reading about this. Or, mm. You know, he's not even experiencing it for the most part. And again, it should be noted he's really reluctant to do that. You know, throughout the film, like you know, he gets a request from a DEA agent to go over yeah. to the scene of one of the crimes, and he goes, "Oh wow, you know what? What a fantastic offer!" Kind of like sarcastically puts it yeah. away, like 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 I would want to do that. That's um, that's that's interesting because that's a scene cut from the book. So in the book, he does meet a DEA agent who never shows up later. But it's quite similar to the idea of um, Bell not liking modernity, where he sort of just offhandedly disses the DEA. He sort of treats mm. them like invaders onto his turf, in a They're sense. A federal yeah, it's like, yeah. I get you guys are useful, but I've got my own rules, even though the DEA are much more equipped in this sense. Mm. What's also important is that mm, Bell is sort of mediating between Carla Jean and Moss, in a sense, in that Carlogene is keeping him updated on what Moss is doing to the point where she tells him he's coming to meet me in El Paso. Uh, not El Paso, sorry, in um, Odyssea, I think it is. No, back in El Paso. Um, Carlogene yeah, has Paso. been with her mother. And one of the scenes we see is, again, 
all the Mexicans in this film are sort of just generically cartel Mexicans. They have also somehow tracked down Cara Jean. Presumably either the big boss tipped them off or they've just been doing their own research. And mm. they find out where they're going, not through her, but through the mother-in-law who clearly doesn't like Moss. Yeah. Um, you know, they sort of play into the helpful, happy foreigner. Like, oh, madame, can we can we help you for the bags? And she's like, oh, it's nice to meet a Mexican in a suit. Like she's all like waspy yeah, 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 yeah. woman. And these guys are clearly like, we know what we're doing here. They get the tea on where they're going and that they're meeting up with Moss. The last we see of Moss in this film, alive, he goes to a mm. hotel in El Paso where he meets yep. a woman who offers him for some beers. Uh, take mm -hmm. it. Now, in the book, she is a hitchhiker he picks up while driving there. And they sort yep. of have... Um, she's a runaway from home and they sort of have a relationship that Moss is... It's... it's it, it's ambiguous as to whether or not they have intercourse or like they they you know they make out or whatever and it's mm. quite it's similar in this movie where we don't actually find out what went on between them um, yeah just... i i always read it as that he refused yeah um okay because he he's he's verbally that it's sort of he says, like, I'm that, but you're right yeah 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 and, and then you just oh it's just a few beers and then he's like but i know what beer leads to yeah it, it verbally it seems to indicate that way but you're right it doesn't show it yeah I think he doesn't do it because it's a, I think it's a more consistent thematic reading of the movie. Mm, okay. The fact that in terms of it's the way in which there's this, you know, again, fatalism, random chance, mm. all this kind of this yeah. theme, the fact that no one seems to be in a traditional moral sense like Bell want be rewarded for good actions. Yeah. So when, when Moss returns to give the uh, Mexican water earlier in the film, he is chased and shot at and, you know, a dog tries to kill him. Yeah. And in this moment as well, he refuses this, um, you know this offer you know that he, he has to kind of cheat on his wife he still yeah. stays loyal and for that shortly afterwards mm. he's killed what if see you could read it in the opposite way and still be on film the film in that at the last minute he's revealed not to be the the archetypal western frontiers man where he's very happy just to you know fuck it um have a beer and a fling and he is still mm. killed as a result of that but i think this film is very big on its elliptical editing and cutting out scenes and after this point, after this point, Moss just stops being a character. Yeah. Um, because again, people keep missing each other. Belle drives up to the motel just in time to see the Mexican cartel drive off in a truck. And we come in to see Moss dead in his hotel room. There is no fanfare. It's not even no. the, the camera doesn't even linger on him. We just see Belle's reaction. It's really interesting about the first time I watched the film, I missed that he died. I talked to my cousin as well um, yeah. when he watched it. He he said the exact same thing. He didn't know. He actually, I actually had to tell him afterwards that Moss had died. Yeah. You know, yeah. Anyway, yeah. And I, 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 he, he didn't. He didn't know. He didn't really. It's that much kind mm. of subverting yeah. that whole thing. And and that's something the Coen Brothers talks about how there's this ingrained thing, especially in westerns, in movies, that when you have a good guy and a bad guy, yeah, they're going to meet, and they wanted to yeah. subvert that and, idea yeah. specifically. And, and this does not, it to the nth degree. And it's not even Sugar who gets him. It's just some random chuckle fucks. Exactly. Yeah. And you can miss that he even died yeah. to them. Yeah. It's that it's considered like that unimportant. Like, yeah. There's like, there is there, there is like a medium close up on his body. Yeah, but, but it's not. It's, there's it's no reference. Shadow. Yeah. It's no reverence. There's no. Yeah. You know, no one, no one goes like you know. It's not like Tommy Lee Jones stands over the body and goes, "Oh, they got Mars." Yeah. Nothing. Isn't saying this is no country for young men. Um, like <laughs> yeah. fucking Carson Wells gets a more dramatic death than this. At least we see it. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. There's a there's also a bit where 
he asks someone to phone the, the police for him. So he's a sheriff, but he asks someone to get the police and he says, I'm not on the radio. And he says it with this mm. really almost sad, bitter tone to his voice where it's, yeah. it's almost starting to sink in that I'm not in the loop. I'm not mm. that important. And what's, I've got a note here. I mentioned Twin Peaks earlier. Um, mm. I love this. When Cara Jean shows up, there's police everywhere. Sheriff Bell just looks at her and she immediately just gets it. And it's like in the pilot of Twin Peaks when we've just found uh, spoilers for a 25 year old TV show about the death of Laura Palmer. When Laura Palmer's parents find out she's dead, no one tells them. They just figure it out for themselves. So when the mm. police show up, they immediately just break down. And it, it's like, yeah, I love that visual storytelling. And like, this is when I. I love actors for being able to portray visual performances. Like Cara Jean just reads what Bell's saying without having to say yeah, anything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that is good. Like that is great acting. Yeah. It, it's, it's, but from, but from yeah. both of them is brilliant. The fact that you can kind of get across that yeah. he's saying that without words. And the fact that you can get across that she's receiving that without yeah. words is kind of brilliant. It's, it's fucking phenomenal. <laughs> we get the memed conversation of dismal tide. If I, you could have told me years ago that there would have been children in our Texas streets with green hair and bones in their noses. Like, it's too... It's, Bell meets the local sheriff and they have a boomer conversation about them, the youth today and how the world isn't what it used to be. And this truly is no country for old men. Yeah, that's true. And then, again, that is a, like, that is a really, like, solidifying scene yeah. for kind of... His for for Bell's kind of ideology there. Yeah, it's interesting. Kind of like, do you do? You, is that scene meant to be? Oh, that's the big boomer scene, or is it? Because uh, the Cohen brothers have sort of said like, yeah, we sort of understand that the story isn't sort of saying there is this moral decay now yeah. and everything. Yeah, but See, but he said, but we kind of he, but he said we yeah. approached it kind of from a position of sympathy, mm. deep sympathy, because we almost feel like that. Yeah, I I find it interesting. It's almost Bell meeting himself before the events of the film in the sense mm. that bell has almost started to understand the new world the world he finds himself in to the point where he actually goes back to the motel um yeah but i find it interesting how bell almost looks like he's going along with this other sheriff he's like yeah yeah i guess you could say. he's got a sense of you know when you talk to your like um, mm -hmm. that one family member who's a little bit odd in terms of politics and you're like and this is too awkward to disagree with it, it's sort of that sense of right, I'm right. going to disagree with you but I can't be bothered almost sense but Bell goes back to the motel because at this point mm. I think he's clocked he's almost got on to what he's facing and this is almost I'll be interested to see what you think of it this is almost like the last gasps of the western heroism so he goes back to Bell uh he goes back to Moss's room and finds a visual motif that has been following him throughout the film. Sugar blows out locks with his cattle gun. So you know he's been in a room. Mm. It, it didn't go back to the slasher thing. You almost know he's been there through this telltale sign. And Moss's yeah. room has that blown out lock. Um, Bell steals himself. He pulls out his gun. He's, he's prepping to go through the door. And when he goes in, he's backlit by his car. And it's a classic sheriff um you know standoff at sunset he's got both hands by by his belt he's got the hat it's the classic western silhouette and there's yeah, yeah. nothing in the room um we've cut to mm. sugar i think sugar's even in the next room i think that's what they're cutting it like there's one cut where we see sugar yeah. waiting in a doorway 
again, that's that through the editing misleading the audience in terms of yeah. thinking this. We thing think up. it's going to be a okay. standoff. Yeah. Moss, okay, Moss wasn't the hero this way. We survived it. Oh, oh, actually, it's yeah. the old hero. He's going to resurrect yeah. these kind of like, old Moors and he's going to face down yeah. that guy. But no. No, Sugar's not there and Bell just breaks down. Like, it's not that he cries, but he just sits on the bed and his head is in his hands. Yeah. He, he just looks broken. Like, it's, I mm. almost feel he almost wanted Sugar to be there in that he could have a standoff, like a classic standoff. Yeah. Um, but he's not. Sugar doesn't even give him that yeah. dignity. And we get another silhouette on the wall of just a tired old man sitting on bed. Like, the John Wayne yeah. sheriff is gone, and it's just a, a really scared man. Yeah, exactly. I, he kind of wanted his um, Gary Cooper um, high, uh, high Noon sort of thing. You know, where he, he you know, because the thing with High Noon is that he wants to stay committed to, Gary Cooper wants to stay committed to the law, and he has to take out this bad guy, because he's the only one who can do it before he retires, despite everyone telling him he needs to give up. And he does it, yeah. and he achieves it, and he's kind of wanting that moment for himself, but he he doesn't get it. Yeah, like I, I completely agree with you. I think Bell would have much preferred to actually die here um, than go on living, because mm. it's not. We don't have that thing in the film where we're setting up. Hey, it's two days before your retirement. How are you feeling? But we learn yeah, later. Yeah. Moss uh, Bell retires. And in a wistful conversation, it almost feels like he wanted to have died at this point and be remembered in the way the old sheriffs were. But he's yeah. not he's not given that. Instead He goes he, out with a whimper. Yeah. Um and he drives off to find solace with I always thought this guy was his brother, but it's not. It's his old deputy who um man's living his best life. He lives out in the middle of nowhere, never has to talk to people, and lives with about a dozen cats. Phenomenal. Do you think it's his uncle? Oh, it might be the it's uncle. His uncle, who I is, think, al he is yeah. also an ex-lawman. Yes, yeah. yeah. I think it is his uncle, Ellis. Yeah. yeah. And this is where we have an interesting conversation, where Bell, Bell is talking to Elias about how he feels outmatched these days, and he feels like the world has gone on without him. And Elias tells him a story about Bell's uncle Mac who was gunned down on his own porch mm. back in 1909. And it took him, he said it took him the entire night to die. And he was buried the next day, just out in the, yeah. get out in the garden. And what he says, mm -hmm. what you got ain't nothing new. So earlier we were talking about, is this film about moral decay or has mm -hmm. this always been here? Now, what I would say yeah. is this film is basically saying this has always been so. And it's only that um, other characters' morality have decayed, either in, you know, they've it, they've always been abraded by reality, in a sense. Yeah, I kind of think it's kind of this idea of, like, perception. So they have this perception that there's a moral decay, but in reality, it's always been there. And it's just kind of taking a new shape, which they can't understand. But it is the same. Yeah. You know, like kind of Ellis does kind of explain. Yeah. It, you know, this stuff always happens. Yeah. It just doesn't look like how it looks like now, so you can't really understand it. Yeah. And so again, the film seems to be making overall the argument um, that, that it's never changed. Not yeah. actually a moral decay happening. Yeah. But it's, but it's just takes a new form, and you fail to understand it, even if it does have really deep sympathy for the position yeah. of uh, Sheriff Bell. I'd say Bell's definitely suffering from nostalgia. In that he definitely, the way he, you know, he says, I like the old timers. He wants to be, he almost subtly, unconsciously wants to be remembered as an old time sheriff. Yeah. And I I think what the film is basically saying at this point is those people never existed. 
yeah, they they were always taken off, taken out by this new evil as well, the new evil of their day. Oh, we do take it that way. Um, see, I I don't even think it's that. I think it's very much just um, this stuff. There was never they were never those men you thought they were, and there was never that idealized past. It was always like this. Yeah, I I agree with basically, but yeah. Um, but yeah, basically, basically the, the point I was just making is that. It's kind of these people are taken out by the new form of evil that manifests. But there's this, this that they didn't understand, but has always been. I guess you can say that, that idea of just evil yeah. just changing shape, but it's always been there. Mm, I would it's even, been actually yeah. actually concretely no different. Yeah. Than in or, any generation. Yeah, I guess you could say that. See, the thing is, like, I, yeah, I guess you could say it's taken forms. But to be honest, I don't even think it's saying that. I think it's just Bell has always fail to recognize what it's like in the sense you know he says mm. i didn't understand the boy who went to the chair like in the same way this world is such yeah. an opaque world to us or the audience it is an opaque world to bell like he's only touched the periphery of it yes, and yes, it's yes. only now that he's getting a sense of the body yeah absolutely absolutely yeah mama carla jean is dead um she dies off screen again it's implied that she died of cancer because she mentioned she's on chemo so we've got a fatalist theme here where she was she was basically approaching death. That's interesting. Yeah. I never interpreted it like that. Huh. I always interpreted the Mexicans killed her. Oh. Because the Mexican she goes off with the Mexicans alone. Oh right. Um, and then it cuts away. Yeah. I always thought that the Mexicans killed her. Interesting. But, like, um, they, I guess they got was... the location and killed her. Yeah. I think to be honest, what I always assumed was because they were loading they were loading her stuff onto the bus. I assumed they were just like, Oh, that's where you're going. Okay, bye. And they just cut head. Again, again, it's that yeah. elliptical mm. vagueness. We, we sort had of just interpretation of this yeah. whole film of what's kind of been uns- yeah. not said. Um, so Carla Jean goes back to her house. She's obviously, or at least her mother's house. She's in distress, and the day just sort of gets worse because who could be waiting in the house? But you know, our homie, our boy, <laughs> our main man, Sugar. Anton Sugar. Um, I love this line where she's saying she basically just goes, "I don't need this bullshit." Like my husband's dead. I don't. Yeah. My mum's dead. I don't have money to pay the bills. And Sugar just goes, "You don't have to worry about bills anymore." And it's like, oh my god. Yeah, yeah. He's right. That goes hard, bro. Yeah. That goes hard. <laughs> oh god. And here's something I find interesting. Sugar says, "I gave my word to your husband, but he chose to save himself because Sugar gave him an ultimatum: come to me with the money, and I will kill you, but I'll leave your wife alone." If you make it difficult, I will go kill her. Mm-hmm. And it's it's interesting how he feels obligated to do this, where he's like, yeah. He he also blames it on Moss. He says, "Hey, mm-hmm. the fucker tried to look after his own skin." In this sense, also, Sugar's painting Moss as a bad guy. He's saying, yeah. "I'm with you, girl. He didn't go save you, so you yeah. know, I I don't like this, but it's his it's his I'm, fault. He made me do this. It's his fault." And yeah. I made a promise to him, is what he says. Yeah. I made a promise to your yeah. husband. Yeah, I made a promise yeah. to your husband. It's like, gotta do it. She does, you know, she says, you don't have to do this, and Sugar rolls his eyes. He doesn't roll his eyes because man's face does not move, but he basically rolls his eyes and goes, everyone fucking says that. Well, he's on the peak of laughing. He doesn't yeah. laugh. Yeah. It, it, at that, at yeah. that statement, like, I've heard that so many times before. They yeah. always say that. He's yeah. Got, yeah, he says it with the vibe of someone who's worked in the restaurant industry and has heard the same order. He's like, everyone does this and you know yeah, yeah yeah or he's like a or he's like a building contractor is like okay you could do 
like that, but we're not gonna do it this way because that never works. <laughs> and yeah. I like how he, he, he says this quite sympathetically. He says, this is the best I can do. Like the kindest thing he can do is mm, give yeah, her the yeah, toy yeah. coin toss. Like he's actually quite, not mournful, but he, he says that quite like, I'm, I'm really sorry. Like there's nothing else I can do here, but I'll, I'll give you this because yeah. I'm feeling nice. Well, it's like the employee or you know, the military officer or whatever. He has to follow the rules. Yeah. But, you know, I don't do it with any 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 pleasure, but just, yeah. I just have to just, do this. Just, it's, it's, it's out of my hands. Yeah, or it's like or it's in that exact position where it's like, okay, you know, I can I can see you having a bad day, so I'll just do this for you because I'm feeling nice. Mm. Um and he says, Call it. Uh she immediately clocks on what's going on and just goes, nah. No. Yeah. The coin doesn't decide anything. It's just you. And for a moment we see a flicker in his face where he's like Oh, and then he goes, no, because I got here the same way the coin did. So yeah. it's fateless. Like he know in his mind, it's already done. He's been, yeah, this yeah. is his set destination. Yeah. And, and again, it kind of goes back to that theme about is he, is he, is this, you know, a genuine philosophy or is yeah. it this him hiding yeah. from responsibility? And this is the ultimate sort of confrontation of his yeah. ideology kind of within, within a specific within a specific kind of narrative textual yeah. sense directly he's almost got like a bird's eye view of his own life uh, his own timeline and as soon as a destination is made clear to him he retrospectively views that as always being his destination yeah there's exactly no, like, and it's the same with the yeah. coin and, and it kind of irks him that someone's tried to subvert this yeah and he's like moment. right as he's wrapping mm, up everything yeah it's that little everyone's ideologies have been tested throughout the film and this is sugar's and mm. he just immediately goes nah i'm not gonna do that i think it's interesting then to say what does the next little bit say about this so mm. again elliptical editing we don't know what happens inside the house after it, we cut outside yeah. after there's this proposition that sugar makes and Carla Jean kind of refuses the proposition outright she refuses to make that choice he says that he has the choice mm. Then Chigar comes out of the house. We don't know what happened inside. And then he looks down at his boots, mm. checking them for something seemingly before walking on. Yeah. How do how do you interpret that? So throughout the film we have set up that Sugar takes great care of his boots, especially when he's killed someone. So the obvious takeaway here is he has killed Carla Jean and he's just checking to see if he's made any mess on his shoes. Hmm. If you're feeling charitable, you could say, since he takes such care not to get them dirty or anything like that, maybe in this, the sense that he's checking now means he didn't do it in the first place. But I, I don't think there's actually any authorial intention behind this point. What I think, this is an interesting scene where it's put in the film for the audience to project onto it. As in, this is very much a scene you can't discuss without lead it, leaving part of yourself on the table. So I mm -hmm. I think she's dead, but that's yep. because I sort of agree with I I sort of I've read Sugar as this unstoppable character of an unstoppable ideology. And I think it's in sort of the the not even the bitter nature of the film, but in the um the mm -hmm. the realistic sense of the film that Sugar is a hunter and he's always gonna get his prey that she would yeah. be dead but thinking on it now you could also have a very a different reading where sugar's gone away from this contemplating change potentially um and mm -hmm. I'll, I'll get into that reading in a bit but i want to hear your thoughts on it i was gonna say i think that it's i i think i think Carl Jean didn't decide 
she you know she refused the proposition still definitely yeah and 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 that he kills her anyway that's the way i read it yes and then he's checking his boots afterwards and to me it's kind of like it's almost a moral win mm. for sugar yeah uh no, no not oh, for sugar for for, i think for, for carla jean True. yeah um and because because it's he's broken his ideology he says it's this fate thing it's mm. not my choice He's had to exercise that free will in choosing to yeah. kill her so directly and challenge in that way. Yeah. And he so he has to do it. And that kind of him checking his boots is sort of like, oh, I've just done that. Am I actually still clean of my can I still present myself? We don't know what happens in that. No yeah. one knows what happened in that. Can I still present myself as that man of principle, that man who believes in chance and fate? Yeah. This you is know, can I still do that? Yeah. I like that you brought this up because this is what I wrote about in my article, and that Carla Jean ultimately gets the ultimate win in that she's basically the only person who recognizes that these ideologies are a bit bullshit. All of them are a bit bullshit. Um, and it's interesting about that my girlfriend said Carla Jean is the closest thing to the hero in the story in that she's almost the only one who comes out on top in the sense that you said that she's almost yeah. won ideologically. Um, she wins and also has the benefit of probably being the most likable character who gets yeah. the least yeah. the least act that are, are, are morally questionable as well. Yeah, I mean, hell, even Sugar likes it. He's like, I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to give the breakout the little coin. Um, Break out the little coin. Yeah, yeah, speaking of fate and random events, on his way home, yeah. Sugar gets hit by a car. He's not dead, um, mm. but he does have a bone poking out of his arm, as two little kids are very fond of saying. Um, yeah. I like this scene quite a lot because Sugar's not being weird to the kids. He's just being very transactional. He's like, give me your shirt. I need to tie a, a sling. All right, here's some money. I was never here. Bye. And he just yeah. walks off into the sunset. And again, that's him acting according to principle because the kids yeah. are like, I'll just give you my shirt. Jesus. You and know, he's you're like, no, 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 no. I need to give something in exchange for this. Yeah. Again, yeah. that's that morality. There's no morality in this in this world. You know, yeah. someone will be refused their moral. Their, you know, yeah. oh, I'll do something for you. No, it has to be transactional. And I think kind this of. Is yeah, this is something uh, one of our teachers pointed out that he's all—he's almost corrupted these kids as he leaves because we can hear them bickering about how they're going to split the money, and mm. it's—it's it's a sort of a theme the Coens have in a lot of their films, especially in Fargo, and you could say in a bit to the Big Lebowski. It, it's and weird. Burn off the yeah, and burn off, it's weird that there are four films about a fucking bag of money um, in yep. these in these dudes' repertoire, where like, someone stumbles upon and yeah. the effects it has on them. Yeah, yeah, like the MacGuffin is just almost. It's almost like a, a a cancerous object in that it just corrupts everything around it. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, that's the last we see of Shigo. He's walking off into the suburban neighborhood. Ostensibly, you know, safe and going to get away from the police. Yeah, his job's done. Um, he's going to, he's presumably off to the next one. And again, it's that tease as well. Of, yeah. Okay, so the our moral heroes didn't beat him, didn't kill him. Yeah. But maybe God will. No. Nope. <laughs> yeah. God, yeah. But no, nope, no, nope, he yeah. lives. He lived. Yeah. I, like fate lived, yeah. car crash would happen. Nope. Nope. It's, God's not here. As yeah. you say in your article, God is dead. God is dead. Yeah. <laughs> or America is dead. dead. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I find it interesting that the next film they did after this was, I think it was A Serious Man, um, which is definitely their most mm. Jewish film, not just because it's about a Jewish community, but it has that sense of, in the Old Testament, God was sort of out to get you. Like he wasn't, he wasn't the all loving, benevolent Christian God. He was sort of just a dude in the sense of he could be nice and he could also be really bad. And you get that in um, A Serious Man, especially when the last scene of A Serious Man is our main character learning he's got a cancer diagnosis. After all he's gone through, yeah. he gets that last curveball from a not nice, not nasty god. 
And I feel like this film is almost the opposite of that, where, hey, you would think in this nasty world, something's nasty is going to happen to Shigur just because of like a curveball. But it's almost like, nah, there's no, there's no, there's no cosmic no justice. Like there's that. no, yeah. yeah. Um, or it's not even, it's not even the sense of there's someone being cruel in a sense. It's mm. just Shigur's job's done and he's off. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it goes unpunished again. You know, moral deeds, seemingly not punished. Yeah. Immoral deeds. So yeah. moral deeds seem to be punished in some way, to some degree, or can be. Yeah. Immoral deeds, you know, mm. God has no judgment on them, seemingly. Moral deeds nuts. Exactly. So the last scene is poor old Sheriff Bell um, feeling like all of us when we either get, have a too long a holiday or into retirement, he's bored and he doesn't know what to do and he's kind of sad about it where he's just hanging around the house with his wife. It sort of mm. it reminds me of lockdown where he's like, do you want to yeah. do something? And she's like, I'm not retired. And he's like, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> exactly. And he discusses his dream that he had the other night. Um, two dreams. Two dreams. The first one, he can't remember very well, to be fair. He said he met yeah. his father in town. But in the second one, it was back in older times. Mm. And his father rode on past him with a burning torch. And Bell knew that he would meet him up ahead. But as he yeah. said, then I woke up. And yes. our film ends. I think also an interesting detail he left in that dream mm. is that he says that he is older yes. than his father ever oh. was now. And he's yeah. actually the younger man in the dream mm. is, 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 is his father. So it's that's also yeah. quite an interesting point. It's interesting that, yeah, his father was allowed to die young in a way. Almost like his dad was allowed to die uncorruptive and Bell's lived too long. Mm. In the sense of this is no country for old men in the sense that you're not going to one way or another you're not going to survive into old age either yeah. you're going to die young or you're going to end up like bell broken i think it's kind of that kind of thing like he's at the fire um you know waiting for him it's kind yeah. of like his aspirational ideal yeah of this image mm. of the old timers he's trying to you know reach and he's waiting for him to come to it yeah and that kind of bell almost feels like now kind of realizes i'm even older than he is you know yeah. i'm never going to reach that aspirational goal yeah. you know and he's going to be waiting there you know forever well, at I least find, that's the way yeah, kind of i interpret it what i find the way i interpret it he says you know my dad's waiting ahead with a flame like mm. i have a goal you know this is i have a vision or a goal to get to yeah and then exactly. i woke up and by that i mean and i know like this means nothing to me anymore like it's not the same dream then i, I yeah i realized yeah. that it's it's not real yeah that, you know that that old past that i had was aspiring to isn't real yeah and i will never achieve that because it's not achievable yeah and we end our film with him looking sadly as um yes. sadly into the distance very sober very unconventional ending which i originally didn't like despite liking mm. the rest of the film yeah uh, but i do uh, basically every time i've rewatched it since i think really thematically yeah. this ending works but it is definitely an ending that if you were looking for a conventional mm ending even a conventionally sad ending it's, it's quite unusual even, because yeah. it, 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 it kind of almost the end you kind of don't even expect well, to happen when it does yeah i mean this film was all about electrical editing and cutting out bits we want to see and the ending is it's no different it's like well yeah. there you go that's it it's almost like we're being cut out of bell's story in the same way moss and everyone else was cut out of the narrative they're just gone yeah yeah, yeah exactly i mean yeah, they, they really they really do. Uh, there's a, definitely a yeah. very strong through line in this film. So, two things. Firstly, I don't think there's any 
debate about whether or not this is one of our darlings because I feel like the fact that we are actually able to have such a long in-depth conversation about this film mm. we both love this film it would yeah, yeah like I it's great it's one of the best films of the century definitely I, I like I never get bored of rewatching this film I always find new things and to be honest like mm. as I wrote an article about it and everything I've made notes for this I never like stop thinking about this as something I can enjoy even when I'm writing, even when I'm like trying to write about it, I just stop writing and I just enjoy it. It's just such a fucking good movie. Yeah. It's it, a good it's story. Good. Yeah. And I think this is, again, you know, I'm going to get on my soapbox and preach for a moment here. Um, this is the type of films that I think Hollywood needs to be making more of now. The fact that these were successful. Yes. This is done by a, you know, kind of mini major independent. I know it's done by Miramax. So like, yeah, oh, when that I'm, logo, when that logo popped up at the beginning, yeah. I was like, oh, no i understand the connotations of that but yeah, you know it's kind uh, of you know, mainstream but indie yeah. it's it was very it was commercially successful it made back its budget and then some um and you know it was a mid mid range budget film it wasn't one of these bloated 200 million cgi fests no and it had artistic attentions it had an auteur but also like you say it's really entertaining and fun to watch so yeah um this is definitely one of our darlings and i sort of want to yeah, and it reminds me of... I, I hate Richard Wagner because I, he's a bit of a weird nationalist, but he came up with a term to describe opera in German, and I forget what it means, but it's basically... At the time, he was saying opera is the perfect form of art because it incorporates writing, music, and acting, and art, as in, like, this prop design. And I almost feel like this film achieves that in that everything is perfect. Like, I don't even say... Mm. I don't like saying it's a good film. I, I, I think it's just a fucking well-presented story it uses all the tools at its disposal to just make yeah 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 um, and that's the beautiful thing about cinema in particular it has it is kind of the mixed art kind of like you're saying with opera yeah because yeah. it has all of those elements you know sound acting yeah you know stage design photography mm. you know yeah. everything and it uses yeah. all of those wonderfully it's almost like the natural succession uh, successor to opera in that sense yeah. um i mean that at least as from my film student perspective yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, my next question to you, Zach. Who would win in a fight? Anton Chigurh or the entire Cash family? Mm -hmm. From Captain Fantastic. <laughs> so, the I premise is... Captain Fantastic. Yeah. Chigurh yeah. has to start in... Like, he starts where he starts in the film. So, he's around El Paso. The Cash family also start wherever they are. So, they're like... Um, Washington, either they're in Washington or, like, Vermont border. Chigurh mm. has a hit out for Ben... For one reason or other, and okay. Ben is also aware of this. What okay. do you think they're gonna do? I think they're gonna go on a road trip, <laughs> constantly moving around. <laughs> never find them. So and, 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 until until yeah, um, until he gets really sad at the discomfort that the assassination attempt is bringing his family, and then he feels he's personally responsible because the hit out is on him, him, and he drives on the drives out on the bus. I by himself and leaves them at Jack's house. Yeah, and he cries to himself in his van, and 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 instead, Sugar goes, "All right, mate," and goes over to Jack's house. It kills, kills the kids. kids. Yeah, I yeah. I sort of think it's going to be the opposite. I think Ben is going to like make a final stand in his his weird little compound house. Like Sugar knows where Ben lives. Ben's like, "All right, remember your training. This is what this is what they were training for. They knew this was going to happen at some point." <laughs> um i think 
the first one to die is definitely either Bo or Relevant. Uh, Relevant? Relian. Relian's gonna, like, go psycho on Sugar, who is immediately just gonna, like, pistol whip him or shoot him. Uh, I feel like he's gonna save Ben for last, just to watch him, let him watch him kill the rest of his family. Um, like, the two, the two ginger kids just die of irrelevancy, as it is. Um... <laughs> I feel like Ben's gonna take a swing at Sugar and just immediately die. Like he's just gonna get blown away by a shotgun. Either way, we both agreed that uh, Sugar's no gonna win. For old men kills Captain. <laughs> <laughs> the figurehead of No Country for Old Men will kill Captain Fantastic. Yeah. 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 So Zach, um, mm -hmm. we before we were even recording these, we discussed who would choose our next Fortnite of films, and it settled on you. I think we even did a coin toss. Um, we did. Oh my god. Call it. Um, I got here the same way the coin did. Oh my god. Um, would you care to tell us what your theme and your chosen film are for the next fortnight? So we are going to be doing uh, slasher movies, which is a film genre that I love, or subgenre that I love. And I'm going to be talking about perhaps the most classic slasher film of all time, Halloween. Yes. Um, which we've made a bunch of references to already with No Country for Old Men, which I had a big think about this. And if we hadn't done No Country for Old Men, I would have actually said No Country for Old Men for the slasher film, because Ooh. Anton Chigurh is basically a slasher vi villain. He has an iconic weapon. He invades your personal space. He is a stalker. He's got all those tropes. Um, he even goes after the final girl who doesn't make it. Um um, but that sort of got me thinking. So I, again, I don't have as much a love. I haven't actually seen many slashes, so I can't say if I have a love for them or not. But mm. that got me thinking what film was the closest, which led me to Prey, um, 2022 or 2023's Predator prequel sequel. Um, set, again, actually, just before the Wild West days, it's in colonial America uh, before basically anyone had staked claims. Um, I enjoyed the f living hell out of this film. I thought it was great. Mm -hmm. Um, the basic premise—it's basically Predator again, but it's against someone from the First Nation taking on the Predator. I like it. I think it's clever in terms of how elegant it's written and how cool the tricks are. Um, mm -hmm. I like the main character in it. I think she's fantastic. I like the the practical effects in it. Um. I also think it could work as a slasher film because you have a strange presence invading your neighborhood. I.e. you have the predator invading her tri uh, her lands and also we'll see in the film French colonialists coming in. She is also probably the best final girl, the trope of the final girl um that mm. I think I've seen. So, yeah. That It'll is very interesting choice. to see how it yeah. stacks up against the most archetypical yeah. slasher as a comparison. How far is it? How close is it to being a slasher? Yeah. And again, I have I haven't seen Prey. Luca hasn't seen Halloween. So this, so this is gonna be a very a first time experience for both of us, which will be really interesting. Yeah. But if you tuned in this far, thank you very much for listening to this second episode of Kill My Darling. If you have any feedback or anything we'd like to discuss or any comments on the films, please let us know in the comments section. I've been Luca Veroness. And I'm Zach Cairns. And uh, we did not kill our darling this time. We liked it. Hey, we got a one for the list. One for the list. Hooray. See ya. Bye. Purple Radio Podcasts.
Thanks for downloading this Purple Radio podcast. For more great content and to listen live, head to purpleradio.co.uk.